0: Once upon a time, they came from space, seven glowing meteors containing seven alien claimants for another world's throne. They had chosen Earth for their battlefield, but they hadn't counted on the presence of Earth's defenders. John Jones was the first to meet one of the would-be rulers. Aquaman was the second in the depths of the Indian Ocean. Wonder Woman encountered her alien menace on the sandy shore of Paradise Island, while Green Lantern fought a fourth high over the verdant plains of Africa. The Flash, too, met and destroyed one of the alien warlords on the Lombardy Plain in Italy. One by one, these aliens were defeated, but then, disaster. Coming together in search of the sixth alien on the Carolina coast, the five heroes fell victim to an unexpected attack as weird radiation from the glowing meteor turned their bodies into wood. At last, the sixth meteor blew apart, and a wooden creature appeared, whose thoughts now controlled the astonished heroes. Alone, each was helpless, but perhaps together. Straining, Aquaman managed to slam against Green Lantern, exposing his power ring, and Green Lantern, in turn, used his ring to restore John Jones's head to normal. With a gust of super breath, the Martian Manhunter propelled the Flash into Wonder Woman, thrusting her within the range of Green Lantern's ring. arm restored to normal she could use her magic lasso and this she did reducing the erstwhile Erlian conqueror into so many ragged splinters its destruction returned the petrified heroes to their original forms and as a group they went after the seventh and final meteor the last alien landed on the barren ice fields of greenland where superman and batman tried to battle it together only to discover that the glowing meteor which held the alien warlord was composed of deadly kryptonite. They, too, used teamwork to defeat the alien threat, and as Batman lassoed the meteor, carrying it away, Superman turned the crystalline alien into coal. Seven meteors had crashed on Earth. Seven menaces had been confronted and destroyed. Seven heroes had acted as a team for the first time in their lives. All that remained was the mopping up. To protect Superman from the potential danger of the kryptonite meteors, the heroes buried the now empty shells where they had landed, in the Indian Ocean, on Paradise Island, in Italy, and elsewhere across the world. As for the surviving aliens, they were returned to their own world, Apalax, and the wooden creature's splinters were kept as a bizarre souvenir. So was formed the Justice League of America Seven of Earth's greatest heroes joined in a common cause, lo, these many years gone. Since then, things have changed. This is Jerry Conway, and welcome to the special 100th episode of the Fire and Water Podcast.
1: Episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of the Aquamanshrine.net and Firestormfan.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Ironamable Shag from Firestorm Fan. Along with me is my co-host, the star-studded Rob Kelly from Aquaman Shrine. Rob, I'm really excited. How are you doing, man?
2: How awesome was that intro?
1: Oh my gosh! <laughs> Jerry Conway the the godfather you know if you will of our characters i mean the actual creator of firestorm and the man who carried aquaman's torch for 11 years with JLA. i mean wow man that was incredible i got chills did you
2: yeah that was a very exciting moment uh for both of us that we got to talk to jerry and get him to record that and he did it in one take one take godway as i call him <laughs> uh no it was it it means the world to us that Jerry would do that, and, uh, you know, when I pitched him the idea, uh, I really thought, but this is pushing it, you know, (laughs) this is pushing it, because, I mean, this is a book that he wrote 35 years ago at this point, and we're just going to get him to read, and he's not an actor or anything, so, but Jerry didn't even hesitate, I think he literally got back to us an hour after we sent the email, (sighs) saying, saying that he would do it, and he could not have been nicer, and so, like... Once we got that in the can, I was like, I don't even the rest of this episode might not be great, but we have this. <laughs> we have this. Well, I guess like this is just I was just so excited that Jerry did well, it. So um thank thank you Jerry Jerry for for doing this for doing that. For those
1: for of you who didn't recognize the text, cuz I don't think we actually say what it is in no, the front end. No, we don't. It, it's the first 3 pages of JLA or 4 pages, or 3 pages of Justice League of America number 200. You know, a comic he wrote himself. So yes. he's reading his own dialogue he wrote back in 1982. Right, and uh, and it just it's the perfect lead-in, and it all led into JLA number 200, which is what we are going to talk about today.
2: Yeah, it is my all-time single favorite comic book uh, of any genre of the medium, and uh, it is in cemented. Uh, you know, not cemented, but it's like when I think about why I love. Bronze Age, Silver Age superhero comic so much, this is the comic I think of more than any other, and uh, I pitched it to Shag that this would be the the book that we cover for this 100th episode, and Shag agreed, and uh, so that's what we're doing today, and and once once we came up with that idea, like I said, we had to have Jerry and a host of guest stars being Woo! involved. So, uh, we're very, very happy and very excited to present this uh, all-star collection of uh, podcasters.
1: Yeah, we're going to go through the whole issue of... Uh... Of Justice League number 200. Now, by the way, we considered waiting till episode 200 to do this. <laughs> but neither one of us could wait. And quite honestly, our contracts are up next year anyway. I'm not sure if I'm going to renew. I'm still thinking about it. So we may not even get to 200. We'll have to see. So uh, we should mention that 100 episodes, man. That's crazy. It's a whole bunch more if you count all the who's who and the specials and the hero points and the power records and everything else we've done on the network. But 100 episodes of Fire and Water. Yeah. Unbelievable, and
2: uh, considering we will pretend that we planned this all along, but Wait, you, uh, you, we we totally said we were going to act like we meant uh, it. I knew, you know, I don't listen. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> for for those of you that listen to this on the day that it drops, which is uh, September seventh, that is the day. This it is three years to the day that our first episode went live, which was September seventh. <laughs> 2011. So that was just t- too perfect to line up uh, to, for, for a beer anniversary episode. It's three years. So the show is three years old. Uh, I never thought for a moment we would get to that point because who would have thought? That, I mean, you know, it's like you know, we 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 set kind of a tough schedule for ourselves and we managed to stick to it. And uh, yeah, it's really super exciting. We were. I, I'm just so jazzed to get to this episode. Well, you know, when
1: we started this, Robin, before we recorded um, three years ago. Rob and I had a long conversation. It was the first phone conversation we'd ever had. And we just chatted back and forth, talked about ideas. Because, you know, we'd known each other via emup, We'd never spoken. So we had this long conversation as we kind of plotted out what we wanted to do with the show. And, again, three years, pff, no way. We were thinking about to the third week, you know, at that point. <laughs> and, and both of us, I think we both kind of felt like, you know what, I don't think a lot of people are going to listen. Let's face it. Oh, I Aquaman. absolutely
2: didn't think that was going to happen.
1: But it's Aquaman and Firestorm. Who cares? You know? And, uh... And we figured, you know what? We're doing this for us, really. Ultimately at the end of the day, we want to have fun. We want to talk about this stuff. So this is, if someone wants to come along for the ride, some you know, the poor misguided fool wants to join us, they're welcome to. But this is really for us and, you know, and who knows if we do it for a while or whatever. This thing has blossomed and grown beyond anything I could have possibly imagined, and it's all thanks to the people who listen. You guys are amazing. This community that has been built up around this show, and it's not even just about our show. It's about you guys interacting with each other. A lot of you guys have become friends. You've gone off and formed your own podcasts in your own blogs together, and you all met through here. It's amazing. The, the, the nuclear sub-community makes me so happy. When, when I want to talk about comic books, these are the first people I look to are these guys you know the folks that are listening to the show so i'm incredibly honored to have played even a small part uh, in bringing this group together
2: yeah i never i never yeah never would have imagined that, that that's anything like that would happen and uh yeah, i'm very very proud that it has and that is what keeps us going in the weeks where it's really tough and we're really tired and we have a chance to you know record and we uh, we're up till three in the morning sometimes recording these things and and it's it's very rewarding. And I, I've mentioned this on the show before. My favorite part of the show really sort of is right after we're done recording and the show is, is done, but it hasn't posted yet. And I just mm. know that it's coming. And I know that – and like that initial reaction that people have when we post a new one, it's so rewarding. It's such a fun thing. So uh, – and I, I said I hope that uh, everybody enjoys this super double, triple length size episode. <laughs> uh
1: yes. Speaking of uh, of uh, feedback and and everything, if you guys want to like live tweet this episode or whatever, if you want to post on social media about it, please use the hashtag podcast. That's how we'll all find each other. That's how we communicate. That's how we kind of identify that what we're talking about. So and you and that that the, the hashtags work on pretty much every social media now. So star studded episode, man. Brought back a lot of old favorites, brought back a couple of new folks, or brought in a couple of new folks. This episode is jam-packed with nuclear subs, wouldn't you say?
2: Yes. The story itself, we haven't mentioned this, is called A League Divided. And as Shag mentioned, it has the three-page intro of the JLA featuring, because uh, not only is this my single favorite comic, that there's a panel that we'll post on the Tumblr, which is Fire and at fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com, of the original seven JLAers standing together. That is my single all-time favorite panel. Of any comic book. Of that shot (laughs) of the seven of them. I want that as a t-shirt. I don't believe I haven't gotten around to making it yet. Um, It is my single favorite panel. And uh, it leads right into the opening splash page. Which is of the JLA satellite floating 22,300 miles in geosynchronous orbit above Metropolis. The story is, of course, by Jerry Conway. The art by this initial chapter. And then the interstitial chapters. And the conclusion is by George Perez and Brett Breeding. Um... The editor is Len Ween. Roy Thomas is the, uh, is the technical consultant. Is that what it is? Technical consultant? Technical advisor. It? Technical advisor. Oh, there it is. And the letter is John Costanza. And the color is, colorist is Carl Gafford. Another fun feature is on the inside covers. This is This book is 72 pages, no ads. On the inside cover is a two-page history of the JLA book written by Jerry Conway. Where he gives like one of those uh, things that E. Nelson Bridwell used to write, which would just like give you the backstory of the particular series. And this time Jerry wrote it, and I used to have those thing almost memorized. I loved <laughs> it so much. I was so fa- I because again, this is 1982, pre pre internet, pre you know pre everything. The only time you could get this history is if it was given to you in a comic book, you know, or in one of those Michael Fleischer books.
1: Before and so we sat around the tribal fire and the and the, and the, and the tribal master. Yeah, told exactly. Yeah, we <laughs> told the great
2: stories and they had you scratch things on the cave wall and things. But I mean, so this this little two page intro that Jerry does is is really lighthearted and fun, and he gives all the backstory to how the JLA worked and everything else. And he starts it off with a riddle but the Beatles and answers it at the end. It's a load of fun. This is like I said, this is my single all time favorite comic. And just I said, we have corralled, much like the book itself, which brings back all the old JLA members, plus all, maybe not all, but a lot of the guest stars. We have brought in a whole bunch of guest stars to be in this episode. So who are we going to hear from, Shag?
1: Well, why don't we why don't we switch back and forth here? Uh, all right, the first one, the first one's going to join me as I talk about the Firestorm chapter with uh, Martian Manhunter. We've got Diablo Frank, uh, long time fan uh, part of the show now he if you want to find Diablo Frank on the interwebs, you can find him at the Idol Head of Diablo, which is his blog. You can also find him on his new podcast he 's a member of called the Marvel superheroes podcast that 's right, folks he 's on the internet. look out You can put him in your ears now and he 's got a million other blogs, but really, the home for finding where Frank is is check out the Idol Head of Diablo
2: uh, yeah, joining me for the second chapter of Aquaman versus Red Tornado is Jay David Weeder who uh, up until recently was doing Dave's Daredevil podcast and a bunch of other shows. And Doug Zawisa, he's the reviewer on Comic Book Resources, and he also does the Doom Patrol blog and other projects.
1: Yep. Then uh, we get to the Wonder Woman Zatanna chapter, and we are joined by a duo of Chris and Cindy Franklin of the Supermates podcast. And you can also find Chris over on the Power Records podcast, part of our network.
2: Chapter 4 is Green Lantern versus The Atom. Joining us there is Green Lantern expert Chad Bokelman, who does the Lantern cast and the Ragman blog. Yep.
1: Then we move on to the Elongated Man in Flash chapter, where we're joined by Siskoid, who's part of our network also with the Hero Points podcast. But you can find him primarily over at Siskoid's blog of geekery. Also, I just got to plug this for him. He is also uh, been integrally involved in these Doctor Who role-playing unofficial source books. So cool.
2: Uh, the next chapter is Batman versus Green Arrow and Black Canary. Joining us for that is Ryan Daly of the Black Canary blog, Flowers and Fish Flowers and Fishnets, and he's also the creator of the insane fumetis—those action figure playdates featuring Aquaman and Firestorm doing wacky, naughty things. <laughs> those are
1: hysterical. And then uh, our final uh, duo we have for the Superman and Hawkman chapter, we are joined by Michael Bailey, who's. All over the internet, but probably best known for From Crisis to Crisis, the podcast. You can also find him at Fortress of Bailey-tude, the Tales of the JSA podcast, and just the list goes on and on and on. And quite frankly, I don't have that enough air to go through all of those. And you can also join by uh, Luke Jackanetti, who is does the Being Carter Hall blog, as well as the Earth Destruction Directed podcast.
2: Yeah, so we, we we invited all these people to come join us because they had been on the show before or they were – Where they were uh, experts of their respective characters And luckily everybody said yes And that was again a very wonderful thing We wanted to make this We want this episode to be like a big party A big party, a big rolling party And we hope that everybody enjoys it And I said, you know, without further ado, I think we're just going to get right into it. Shag and I will come back at the end to talk about the final chapters because I said I feel like the show should end the way it started, which is just Shag and I being idiots rambling on together, um, (laughs) which is something I'm sure we can do. Uh, So why don't we just get started with Chapter 1 of uh, JLA Number 200, A League Divided, featuring Firestorm the Nuclear Man versus the Martian Manhunter.
3: 22,300 miles above the Earth. Firestorm was on monitor duty aboard the Justice League satellite, complaining to himself about missing a high school basketball game. While watching Lucy reruns, Old Match had a surprise learn a missile is streaking from outside Metropolis right for his station. That's not a missile. An explosion of very technical-looking parts heralds the arrival of the Manhunter from Mars, angrily demanding to know why JLA headquarters was deserted, who Firestorm was, and where the classic DC heroes were. So basically he sounded like Alex Ross on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Ronnie is all what the what? While keeping his wits about him, sealing the unauthorized entry hole before the whole station decompressed in the vacuum of outer space. Unfortunately, Ronnie never learned how not to read without moving his lips or how to converse with Professor Stein outside his psychic matrix without speaking out loud. John Jones asked, Who do you talk to, boy? like Angus Scrim in a phantasm movie. <laughs> The Martian Marvel had used his signal device from his days as a founding member of the, ju- of the League in hopes of finding his six fellows, but instead followed the signal as it led him to the satellite. When Firestorm proved too confused himself to answer any questions, the sleuth from outer space took, him, took his leave to investigate the station. The Martian detective recognized some of the equipment being used as the Leagues and thought it might have been stolen. Firestorm didn't just give John Jones run of the station, but when he tried to follow the Manhunter, the Martian turned invisible. Ronnie had a debate about the situation with Professor Stein, who had noticed that the Martians seemed to shy away from Matchhead. Ronnie was very sympathetic, preferring his jolly green giant stay on TV, not come crashing through walls like a pea-colored Superman. Stein correctly surmised that it was the appearance of flames that had disturbed the Martian Manhunter, so Ronnie turned up the heat, flushing him out. Superheated air made John Jones partially visible and clearly not amused, as he smashed the glass display case against Firestorm. The nuclear man set the remains of the case still in John Jones's hands, a fire. Flames being a Martian's deadly enemy, the Manhunter's reaction was furious. Martian vision erupted the satellite sprinkler system, and while the alien atlas ripped up a chunk of flooring to hurl at the boar, Firestorm was knocked out and woke up with a serious hurt on. <laughs>
4: All
1: right. Well, thank you, Diablo Frank, for that summary. That's fantastic. Well, so what did you think? Walk, you know, first read on this. What do you think?
3: Uh, the story, I, I, it's, it's, let me put it this way. It's dumb. It's a dumb story, and I'm perfectly fine with that because it's absolutely great time, and I don't want the story getting in the way. Uh, What it reminded me of is uh, JLA Avengers, the original JLA versus Avengers from the 80s that uh, Conway and Perez were going to do. And then Jim Shooter comes in and he's nitpicking the story and doesn't like the the MacGuffin that they've got to bring everybody together. But the whole point is to have the characters interact. You don't care about the story. Story gets in the way of what you really want. And that's what this story does here is it's all about getting the heroes into the same room, having them fight each other and, you know, getting off on the whole anniversary fund. So I'm fine with it, and I'm fine with how the matches has turned out, especially because my guy won our match.
0: Oh,
1: <laughs> such, such, so bogus. You know, there's, i got a lot to say about this. Now, first of all, we should, we should mention the art in this chapter was done by Pat Broderick and Terry Austin. So no slouches in the art department there, folks. I mean, that's great.
3: Yeah, and I got to meet Pat Broderick at uh, Comic of 2014 mm. and got a few pieces from him, so I was pretty happy with that. He's a real good guy.
1: Very cool. I met him, oh, gosh, like a million years ago, like 95 or something like that. And, uh, yeah, good, good guy. So, all right, I want to start growing, like breaking this down bit by bit here. Um, first off, I got to say, I think it's pretty awesome how f- apparently Marsh Manhunter can fly at incredible crazy speeds. Because Firestorm first notices him on the radar, and then a moment later he's smashing through the walls. I mean, that's crazy fast.
3: <laughs> how fast does he normally fly? However fast the story needs him to fly. There you go. That's, that's the easiest way to describe any marshman Man power, especially considering that this is the the middle of the Bronze Age or fairly late in the Bronze Age. Uh, all the Silver Age stuff, he had whatever powers he needed. He could fly as fast as he needed to. He could live in space, and then he couldn't get from Earth to Mars. It just whatever they needed for him to do, that's what he could do.
1: Okay, fair enough. I think my favorite panel in the whole thing is—it's, of course, it's a match head move. Uh, it's page seven, the top panel, right after Marshman Hunters burst through the wall. Firestorm does a Duke's a Hazard slide <laughs> across the floor. Of the satellite, like, woo! Come on, Duke boys, let's go! I don't know what the purpose of that was, but I absolutely love it. So, speaking of art, a couple—you know—something I noticed here. I guess I've never noticed this, but now I can't unnotice it. Martian Manhunter has nipples.
3: Like Sometimes he does have nipples, yes. And if you look at the old Silver Age stories, he tended to prance around a little bit, too. So I could see where maybe part of the problem that he had with the audiences was making them feel a little bit uncomfortable, insecure, that sort of thing.
1: <laughs> it's really bothering me. <laughs> All right. Um, Firestorm didn't attack the whole time. Did you notice that? It, he, like, I don't know whether it was level-headed or idiotic, but he never attacked Martian Manhunter.
3: Actually, I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on the pea-colored Superman thing because now I'm picturing the pea nipples. <laughs> so trying to move forward from that is difficult for me. I'm glad that Firestorm didn't put up that great of a fight against uh, uh, Martian Manhunter um, because pretty much all Martian Manhunter was doing for like a decade before this was starting fights that he couldn't win. So if it takes Firestorm to essentially throwing the fight so that he could at least win one, I was happy about that. It was but it, Firestorm favorite. is usually a little bit more proactive though, isn't he?
1: At first term usually shoots first and thinks later, so it's kind of surprising that he did not just come right out and attack. Now, he did do the, the heat to make Martian Manhunter appear, but that's the only offensive thing he does in Martian Manhunter at all.
3: And you think, not recognizing the character, you would be a bit more aggressive. He just blew up your satellite and damn near killed you. Yeah, you know? Yep. um, uh, and you know, it's funny too because, um, literally. Marsh, uh, 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 Firestorm missed the Martian Manor guest appearance in Justice League by an issue. He joined the issue after a 2 party with Manhunter. So the only way that would have worked is if he had joined at that particular point in time. That's the only way that they would have known each other ahead of time. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool.
2: You know, you mentioned that. You mentioned that, Frank, and then it's funny because in that issue, the Firestorm joins. Green Arrow chastises Firestorm for not paying attention when he's getting the lecture, and it turns out Green Arrow was right because had Firestorm paying attention, he would have known who this was. <laughs> Had he bothered to look point. at the JLA records, he would have said, oh, this is that former guy. Okay, all right. Instead, he has no idea who Martian Manhunter even is. Well,
1: I think what it was is Professor Stein wanted to watch I Love Lucy, and he just pushed Ronnie into watching it. Because, you know, it's an older generation, likes the reruns, that kind of thing.
3: He was lulled into a daze by Desi Arnaz, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, it's exactly what I'm saying. Or he had a crush on Lucille. But uh, two cool things for the Manhunter: the, him picking up that trophy and smashing it is a great demonstration of his strength, and the Martian vision—the way like it's roiling out of his eyes—is so cool.
3: Yeah, actually, for me, I enjoy the Firestorm aspects of this more, especially there's that one panel where he's just standing there thinking, which, you know, we're not used to seeing from Firestorm, (laughs) Um, but it's so well drawn. He just looks really cool. He's doing it. He looks very unearthly. I I like when Firestorm is played that way. I'm not into the whole Peter Parker with transmutation powers thing. I like it when he's a little bit more spooky. So, you know, you can
1: see, you can see his pupils in that scene, too, which is very unusual.
3: Yeah, it makes it well. It, it's you can see the eyeball, but you can't see the irises. Right. So it's so yeah, it, it's definitely weird, kind of. But I like it. I dig it. It's cool. Yeah. It reminds me more because I mean, my favorite Pat Broderick series is Captain Adam, where mm. that character was played a little bit more serious and a little bit, you know, and and he interacted with a Firestorm during the Blank Slate period for the most part. So I got that's that's my perspective on a Firestorm. Where I like him when he's, you know, I mean, he's a nuclear man. That scared the crap out of me in the '80s. So
1: yeah. And Blank Slate was definitely an eerie era. No doubt about that. You, you mentioned Broderick. Just worth mentioning here for you matchheads. Uh, I did a little research on this. You know, This comic, Justice League 200, uh, came out in December of 81. And I was thinking, okay, Broderick is doing Fire, the Firestorm segment, yet the ongoing Firestorm series hadn't started at this point, which was where Broderick really got known for doing Firestorm. Well, if you go back a few months, Broderick was drawing the Firestorm backups in Flash, he did the last couple of Firestorm backups in Flash. Then there's, like, this six-month gap until the monthly series of Firestorm started. So at this point, you know, Broderick really was tagged as the Firestorm artist. So it made sense to have him. And having him with Terry Austin, oh, God, you know, just hey, – Terry Austin can eat anything as far as I'm concerned.
3: Well, and you have a kind of a neat parallel, too, because um... – Firestorm came out of the D.C. Explosion. Mm -hmm. Martian Manhunter was supposed to come out of the D.C. Explosion. He had the short-lived backup serial, which was killed by the D.C. Implosion. And that's what reduced Firestorm to being a backup. So you have this weird little, you know, knot going over here. Yeah. One thing I kind of dug, too, is that Manhunter was a founding member of the Justice League. um, And what happened is, as... Uh, Julie Schwartz kept coming up with new versions of Golden Age characters and kind of trying to push them out into the audience. Manhattan kind of got pushed out of the Justice League by all these new people coming in. So you have a bit of a meta commentary that the first guy who got pushed out of the Justice League is coming back to beat up the last guy who came into the Justice League before (laughs) the Detroit era. (laughs)
1: That's pretty true. That's pretty true. I'm still bothered that Firestorm lost this fight. But as you said, it had to work for the story. Otherwise, Firestorm would have cleaned his clock, Mr.
3: Well, I mean, it's it's an easy, besides the stuff I was talking about, it's just an easy matchup because you've got an extremely powerful hero, well, two three extremely powerful heroes, don't get me wrong, but you've got the Superman-level guy who many people would struggle with, and then you end up pitting him against the fire guy. And Firestorm isn't really a fire guy, but you've got that immediate button that he can mm-hmm. push at any time. And it, it, I guess it's uh, to Conway's credit that instead of favoring his own character, he allowed him to take that fall when he could have probably knocked out the Manhunter through an easy, you know, one-two punch.
1: Well, it it is kind of interesting how quickly the professor made the leap about the fire. You know, it's like that was a pretty hard leap to swallow that the professor leaped to to realizing that you know, Marshall Manhattan must be weak to heat. It was like, "Mm, that's a little sketchy.
3: Well, if somebody's got bad breath and they're talking at you, you're going to kind of flinch. You're going to kind of give them body (laughs) motions. So I guess this is somewhat similar.
1: All right. well, last thing I want to mention before we head out here is I love at the beginning versus chapter one and you get the logos of Firestorm the Nuclear Man versus Martian, or, I'm sorry, Manhunter from Mars, and it's the classic logos from their serials, which is awesome. This is the original Firestorm logo before they sort of cleaned it up. It looks kind of. Uh, it- Amateurish is kind of how yeah. it's thought it. You know, before they got slick with the fury of and the Mar- that Manhunter from Mars logo has always been slick. I love that.
3: And that was actually it was very short lived. That was uh, created in 1977 by uh, Mike Nasser, who eventually became Michael Netzer. And it was only used until about the mid 80s when they started using the Superpowers logo. And then almost immediately after that, um, the very pointy one that got popular used from 1988 until the new millennium. <laughs> So it actually went around very long. I don't think they wanted to use the term Manhunter from Mars anymore because it's not as punchy. I think once they rolled out the superpowers, they wanted everybody to have that nice, tight, uh, trademark-ready uh, name. So, Martian Manhunter.
1: Yeah, well, now they could go back to using this logo because isn't he just Manhunter now?
3: Yeah, it's not going to happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> DC,
3: DC Comics doesn't have history anymore, don't you know? Oh, okay. Everything's new and shiny and looks like a video game, so none of that. <laughs>
2: So Firestorm wakes up uh, a couple hours later after the uh, giant battle with the Martian Minhunter where he got schooled totally. Uh, he, is, hey. Well, he did. Uh, so anyway, he's laying there and he realizes that uh, Martin Stein is sort of waiting for him to wake up, sort of. I guess that's how that works. I don't know. Can Martin Stein be awake while Ronnie is not? Can that I don't work? think Martin
1: Stein can sleep. Like, I don't remember a time where Martin Stein was ever asleep.
2: Okay. so all right, So he's waiting for Ronnie to wake up. So Ronnie finally wakes up. He sends out a triple priority signal, <laughs> which is the highest priority JLA signal. It's it, the remnants of like a double dog, dare Daria. Um, right. He sends it out, and he says, any leaguer misses this one, he would have to be dead. So then we cut to a nice full-page shot of the JLA members. But as we notice, they are only the newer, quote-unquote, newer members. Green Arrow, former member. Adam, Hawkman, Red Tornado, Zatanna, elongated man and Black Canary. And, of course, there was no Hawkgirl. And many of you are wondering why is there, because Hawkgirl neither appears in this issue, nor she mentioned. And why is that? Well, that's because at the time, in the world's finest strip that Hawkman had over uh, over there, Hawkgirl was off-planet, like she was got kidnapped or something. And Hawkman was searching for her. So, Jerry Conway decided to keep it in continuity and have her be missing. I wish he hadn't done that, because I love Hawkgirl and she belongs here, but That's what what he chose to do. Anyway, the members show up. They start talking to Firestorm. Firestorm has no idea who John even is. uh, Mm -hmm. Because Red Tornado says, from your description, Firestorm, it would seem the damage was done by John Johns. And Firestorm says, come again? John who? And he says, John Johns, the Martian Manhunter, one of the original members. And then it's uh, Green Arrow. I mean, uh, Firestorm points out that none of the original members have shown up to this distress call. And it's Green Arrow who realizes, "Uh uh-oh, I think I know what's going on. They go to the map room. They, uh, he tells the story of the Appellax Meteors, and then they realize that what this probably means is all of the various JLIers are going after the Appellax Meteors, and that's a pretty scary idea. Then they realize there is a stranger in the JLA satellite, and it is everyone's favorite, Snapper Carr. Uh, he, receives, he receives the triple priority signal. Uh, even though he's, he shouldn't, but he got one. So he decides to stay at the satellite along with uh, – Green Arrow says we're all going to split up into teams. Firestorm, you stay here with Snapper back at the satellite, which Firestorm is not happy about.
1: That is a total bunch of crap. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and we see the transporters shoot down to the Earth, and uh, we will find out where they all go in a moment. Uh, but anyway, these are the four pages that, are the, that set up the plot of Jelly 200. And this is George Perez Art with Brett Breeding Inks.
1: But, like, you know, there's a couple different points here. Like, you know, Firestorm not knowing who John Jones is is actually a nice reflection of all the kids at the time who were reading comics who didn't know who he was right. either. I certainly didn't. You know, I had no clue who he was. And then uh, I like Green Arrow freaking out. That's kind of fun. Like, there's some actually some nice shadow work on him in the, in the third page. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but Firestorm getting left with, with, with uh, snapper cars, like, such a load of bull. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. It's like, hey, we'll take Zatanna. But besides her, we don't need the other incredibly powerful <laughs> member of the Justice League. We'll just leave him here with the kid who can snap.
2: Green Arrow is not a great team leader. <laughs> he's not. He's just that, that's you're right. That makes no sense. I mean, you can't blame you know of of all the people who you can't blame. It's Jerry Conway, you know, for leaving out his own creation in the story. I mean, uh, if it was any other writer, you could say, well, he's playing you know he's not he's playing favorites against Firestorm, but. Clearly, that's not what Jerry was doing, but uh, structurally, yeah, Firestorm gets left behind. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, Firestorm is not written terribly intelligent here. Um, I mean, when, they, when Green Arrow mentions the thing about all the Apellex meteors, it's Firestorm who says, and you think the Martian Manhunter is going after them? And Elongated Man says, not just the Martian Manhunter, Firestorm. Don't you get it? The seven original members must be, and then they get interrupted by the uh, by the intruder alarm. So, yeah, <laughs> Firestorm really is kind of a lunkhead, but we can chalk that to the fact that maybe he got his butt kicked, and he's right. just getting he's over a, that.
1: He's a little little shaky now. You could argue the other side: say Firestorm, uh, Jerry Conway was playing favorites with Firestorm because Firestorm got the opening battle. That's true you know that and that's uh, that's the real reason he doesn't go on the rest of the mission is cuz he's already had his solo adventure. Yes. Yeah. Um so you you could argue that yeah he did get played favorites because he's awesome. So. <laughs> All right. Um I think that's that. On yeah. to chapter uh, 2. S- some dude who can talk to fish and some dude who likes to blow. Yeah.
5: The Jim Aparo drawn chapter begins with the Phantom Stranger filling us in on random facts about the Indian Ocean. As he overlooks the water for what is about to occur, near a newly formed—oh, I'm at a bad angle, sorry. Near, near, near a newly formed volcanic island, Aquaman surfaces, frustrated that he has not found his Apalex meteor. Aquaman sets foot on the island where he spots his quarry, but as he approaches it, he is hit by a gust of wind. With his memories wiped, Aquaman doesn't recognize his teammate Red Tornado, who has been dispatched to tend to the King of the Seven Seas. So Aquaman tackles Reddy right out of the air and plunges him into the water where the android begins to sink, dazed from the powerful blow. Thinking of his beloved adopted daughter, Treya, and his lady love, Kathy, Red Tornado wills himself to spin a tornado and get back to the surface world. While Reddy was underwater, Aquaman has managed to reach the meteor, and Red Tornado moves in to stop his comrade turned enemy But the Phantom Stranger pulls a bitch move and strikes Reddy with magic lightning, (laughs) allowing Aquaman to swim away with the meteor.
4: Leave it to Rob's two favorite characters there to team up and take down Red Tornado. (laughs) (laughs) Sneaky, sis. So there's Red Tornado, prone on the rocks. Phantom Stranger, of course, monologues, monologues over Reddy's (laughs) unconscious form. Then transports him up to the satellite and dumps him off with a nice, glorious thump. Where Snapper Car and Firestorm hear him. And again, within the span of eight issues here, we've got Firestorm coming to Red Tornado's aid, trying to figure things out and help his buddy. It's amazing we didn't get a, a team up book out of this at some point. <laughs> you know, back in 193, the two of them were all chummy. Here they are again. We've got some very nice uh, George Perez art filling this through. So from here, it's on to Wonder Woman and Zatanna.
2: So, all right. Now, obviously, this being the Alchemy chapter, I have a lot to say about it. But since you guys are the guests, I will. let, You know, you guys should go first. Dave, Doug, what do you think of this of this chapter? I
5: was going to say, well, Jim Apparel wakes up, or let me try that again. Jim Apparel woke up and pissed excellence when it came to art. So it was it was beautiful all the way through.
2: It is beautiful to look at. It is really well done. I mean, I said I, I love the idea that all of the artists, uh, except for the Batman chapter, all of the chapters feature the characters drawn by, you know, the artists most familiar with, you know, most associated with them. Uh, you know, you get Broderick doing Firestorm, a pair doing Aquaman, uh, Hawk, Hawkman done by Joe Kubert, et cetera, et cetera. So I love the fact that they got a pair to do Aquaman again. This was, this was really cool. But I mean, what about, I mean, look, I like Red Tornado. I, I don't like the idea that Aquaman really was even remotely going to be defeated by him and that the Phantom Stranger had to step in. That just bothers
4: me. It, it's not that he was going to remotely be defeated. He was going to get clobbered.
2: All right. Much, yeah. All right. Oh, God,
4: jeez. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm with you on that one, Rob, in that the Phantom Stranger's out of place here. This isn't his battle to fight, but he, you know, through the inner monologue makes it all clear. Or not inner, <laughs> but the uh, almost villainous monologue makes it all very clear that. This has to be done. It's for the greater good. I like how you say he's out of place when uh, he's like, I don't
5: take sides, but uh, I just walk
4: this guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the watcher stepping in and going, wait a minute, I got to fix this.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I again, one of the other things I liked about this whole comic is that Jerry Conway brought in all of the JLA repeating guest stars. You've got Snapper Carr. Well, that's not great, but you've got Snapper Carr. You've got Martian Manhunter. You've got Phantom Stranger. You've got Adam Strange. I mean, that's I love that. But uh, again, it just like even as a kid, and I read this comic, I was like, wait a minute, Aquaman wasn't going to be defeated by Red Tornado? Come on, you know. I mean, you know, geez, Um, why not? Because it's Red Tornado. (laughs) What?
4: Have you seen what a tornado can do? I if, yes, I know. If I'm not mistaken, Aquaman was defeated by Teo Morrow, wasn't he?
2: He was. Ooh. He was. Go ahead and
4: just drop the mic, Doug. <laughs> I know.
2: Oh god, I'm I'm regretting inviting you guys to this now. This is this is not what I wanted. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Aparo does a great job at, at conveying like that that shot of Aquaman getting knocked by the wind. Over That's a great shot. I mean, he really mm-hmm. does get the, the violence of the wind there, I have to say. I mean, it looks really cool. And then the full-page shot of the three of them with Fanner-Changer off in the background, that looks really great, too.
5: Yeah. Well, I love uh, when Red is coming back out of the water, the look of determination on his face. And then just the panel above it just being the silhouette.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, – I, I don't know how to describe that. But it, like you said, Dave, it, it's a silhouette, but it's, it's more than a silhouette. And they've used yeah. it before for, like, mental projections around this time. Uh, Like, uh, there's a cover with Hector Hammond, I think, on it, when Firestorm's in the hospital, maybe, or Martin Stein's in the hospital? Yes,
2: JLA-205, yeah.
6: Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a a look that, you know, they don't even attempt to do anything like that now, but it gets the same notion across that this is something that's mental more than physical at this point. Whereas now it'd just be, who knows, probably fades and filters
2: and <laughs> yeah really, yeah. you can't just draw it you don't have to do all the exactly. photoshopping stuff you can't just have it in there well credit to conway as
5: well that scene is actually pretty moving when he's thinking about his motivation because you're talking about a character that's striving to be human and these are human connections and that's what brings him back up Yes, and it's such a short quick chapter to have that nestled in there is just expert writing
2: yeah so, everybody gets a great little a little moment in this book everybody
4: and that's the great thing about this book is it's all these great little chapters. Yeah, you know, if, yeah. they, if they took this and put it out in weekly bursts, like they do on uh, the DC digital stuff for adventures of Superman and Batman, whatever that one was titled and the upcoming Wonder Woman one, the digital first weekly stuff, this would just be a top seller. I'd buy it every oh, yeah. week. Oh yeah. yeah.
2: This would be a blast. This would be a real blast.
4: That's something they need to figure out is how to get, like a JLA satellite era comic going and maybe kick it off with something like this. Except don't put Zatanna in this terrible costume.
7: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Another nice moment I think is when, when Phantom Ginger zaps Red Tornado. Like again, he really gets that, like Red Tornado really looks like he's in agony when he's getting hit. I mean, it's just really, really nice. And then I said the, the the shot of Aquaman diving towards the camera with the Appellax meteor under his arm. He just looks so determined. You know, I mean, apparel was good at that, at that drawing that really sort of stoic face sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's really hitting it on all cylinders here. This is a and
4: really a, nice thing. Apero really gave Red Tornado a little bit more range of emotion than Perez did. And Perez wasn't short of giving t- Tornado emotion. He just handled it differently. Whereas here, Apero is truly drawing real human emotions on an android. Yeah. It's like a...
5: Perez used a filter, and, and I get why. That's just based on the character. That's good storytelling. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. apparel just lets it go. The only panel I don't like is when he's getting zapped, and that's just because you can see his clown pants. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'm glad they got rid of down the line. But I mean, visually, Red Tornado is just a beautiful character. But he I, looks I, I, he looks uh, awesome
2: uh, as an action figure, though. Even in the clown pants, the the yes, superpowers I know. figure looks great.
5: Actually, yeah, I have it right here, and actually, it ties into this show. The day I got it, I was listening to the Superpowers episode reminiscing whimsically and i happened to pull up to the comic shop and they had a bundle of them for 6.99 a piece. Oh. No. Red Tornado included so.
2: That's a Man. deal. Yeah, it is. Yeah.
5: Oh, i started <laughs> snatching them up. A
4: little jealous.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry Doug, we interrupt. What were you going to say? No, no, no. I i was just
4: saying i'm a little jealous. I i don't have any of the superpowers figures.
5: <laughs> well, when it comes to Aquaman, i still have the toy biz figure, so uh, you oh, can have that.
2: Whoa, <laughs> well, god. <that's>... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. The Nick wonderful rattling action. Yeah. That he can't set up under his own power action. That's great. No,
5: and he's actually leaned up against the shelf now. Yeah.
2: Oh god, that's, that's just the worst toy in history. So, um, and then the the final two pages you've got with Perez. Perez does a beautiful. I mean, all the detail of Red Tornado laying there. And then I like uh, when we cut back to the JLA satellite. And then you've you've got the uh, we joined the conversation midway, and he hears Snapper saying, and that's how he made me an honorary member back when we first thought Starro. First thought starro yeah. I've yeah. always found Snapper Car very annoying. I like the idea that Firestorm does too. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
5: yeah. yeah, they made me an honorary member because I had Lime.
2: Yeah, ooh. I, mean, oh I never liked this guy, never have. I mean, no. I, I'm glad he's in this issue, but, oh, geez. Um And then this said the final moment. You've got a little thing with Martin Stein here, and then he, he hooks Red Tornado up to the uh, – Computer servos, whatever they got. Oh, I just, Sorry. I like that final thing where it says, somewhere Exchanger stranger is smiling, his job is done. I just thought that was such a nice thing that Phantom Stranger sees all, knows all. You know, I always like that about the character.
5: You may be a little biased on the character though. I may
2: be. I may be a little biased. Although I wrote that article about Red Tornado, so I like Red Tornado. <laughs>
4: yes, good, sir. Yes, indeed. So, and uh, in this scene, Firestorm's a whole lot more confident than he was just seven issues prior. That's true. You know, when he was ready to chalk Aquaman up after Moro took care of him, now he's right there at Reddy's side and trying to figure out how to get this done, even though he doesn't know anything about helping out an android.
2: I guess maybe because of their experience together, as you, you mentioned in the JLA 192-193, that he's feeling a little more confident about or just protective of his buddy. I mean, I said I... It's a shame that Conway never really got the chance to develop this much past this. Because it yeah. seemed like he was building a friendship in, the, well, in, in JLA with these two, which would have been interesting.
4: And they come back together in crisis again.
2: That's right. Reddy's
4: That's right. in a similar situation in Firestorm's right there. It is a, a great, great book.
8: Chapter 3, Zatanna vs. Wonder Woman. Art is by Dick Giordano. Colors by Adrian Roy. Gliding swiftly on the winds, Zatanna travels to Paradise Island, home of the Amazons. There, years ago, Wonder Woman, princess of her people, buried the Apalaxian meteor that once contained the Mercury Monster. Arriving on the island, the Mistress of Magic enc- encounters Queen Hippolyta, Wonder Woman's mother. The Queen informs Zatanna of what she's already feared. Wonder Woman is on the island, and she is after the meteor. In the Temple of Athena, the amazing Amazon locates the glowing rock beneath a huge stone slab. She finds it strange that she cannot recall how long ago it was that she buried the meteor here. Just as she is about to pick up the meteor, the ground opens up, swallowing it. It is the work of Zatanna, whose magic has created a fissure in the earth. An angry Wonder Woman does not recognize her teammate, or understand why her mother stands against her and hurls the large slab of rock at them. The sorceress uses her reverse magic to create a column of earth to block the flying stone, saving her and Hippolyta from certain death. Hippolyta knows her daughter wouldn't act this way of her own accord, while Zatanna realizes in the confusion, Wonder Woman has retrieved the meteor and is speeding towards her invisible plane. In a desperate effort, Zatanna cast another spell, sending away from the nearby sea at the fleeing Amazon. Spinning her magic lasso at dizzying speeds, Wonder Woman sends the full force of the destructive wave crashing onto Zatanna. Her enemy down, the Amazon princess, leaps into her plane and leaves her home island behind, the glowing meteor at her side, and her foe near death on the beach below. Miraculously, the young magician awakens under the purple healing ray of the Amazon, which manages to restore her health after her near-drowning. Hippolyta knows her daughter was not herself, but under some evil control. Zatanna agrees and worries that all the founding leaguers may be under the same spell. Somehow being tied to the meteors, she wonders if it's already too late to stop them.
2: Wow! Once again, once again, one of the Franklins delivers one of the best synopses. We <laughs> really, of all hundred episodes we've done of the show.
8: I gotta say, it's mainly Chris. Now, sometimes he gets a little fancy on his. I think he goes to a thesaurus and just says, oh, I'll just throw that shit in there. <laughs> just to try and throw me up. So, the, the
2: amount of preparation is stunning you guys put together in this. for all this No, five not pages stunning.
8: Here. No, 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 no. No, don't tell him that crap because he'll do more of it. No, don't tell him that. Do not compliment him on that. Uh, can don't, we just God, not... You real, we do just, you realize I'm the one that has to read this? Dude. <laughs>
2: is meant to be a celebration city can we not fight uh anyway uh so so Kristen, city what do you what did you think of this particular chapter of the issue
8: well i mean the question i mean we were talking about this right before we went to recording but zatanna zatanna i mean how do you say that you're like what? you've heard it in you know on different tv shows one way and on comic book series and i mean what's your all's opinion how do you pronounce it i always thought it was zatanna
9: yeah, me too, and 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 I looked, I actually went, because I knew we were going to record this, I went and looked on, well, I went to Justice League Unlimited first, The this Little Piggy episode. They never say her name in that episode. Oh, jeez. Her name is up on the, the uh, curtain Martin, behind yeah. her, and they never say her name. And then I went to Batman the Animated Series, it was Zatanna. So then I went to Smallville, it was Zatanna. So <laughs> I guess it's up to that. This is like the great Ra's al Ghul, Ra's al Ghul <laughs> debate going on in Who's Who right now.
2: <laughs> I don't know if that's really a great debate exactly, but uh, you know what? It, it actually does make sense that it's Zatanna if her father is Zatara. It, it right. makes exactly. more sense. So, Yeah. All yeah. right. All I right, think... Cindy. Don't rub it in. Jeez. Be bad
8: enough. <laughs> oh, honey. Check here. Gonna happen. Yeah.
9: <laughs> that, that's right. Uh, well, you know, I thought this was, uh, you know, they got Dick Giordano to draw this, and of course he has a lot of history with Wonder Woman. He came in as a an inker over Mike Sikowski on the the Judo Chopping non-powered Wonder Woman and then took over as penciler. He did a lot of the Wonder Woman licensing art in the 70s during, you know, Wonder Woman's big merchandising heyday and who drew women at DC better than Dick Giordano? So, you know, perfect guy for this
2: chapter. Yeah, she looks about as iconic as it gets, especially in the full page shot of her throwing the giant stone wall. I mean, she looks like what you, I would imagine if you asked a kid to draw Wonder Woman, you know, like this, what it would look, you know, as close as it would. Like, this looks like what every person's idea of Wonder Woman is, was Dick Giordano's version, I would say. Right. I mean, you can hear
9: the, the theme song in the background, you know, Linda Carter yeah. going on. So, uh, didn't... I don't
8: know. I think that's something that. Must be passed down in his family because his nephew, Vin Trapini, he does awesome work. He is a doll artist and he does not only is he an art teacher, but he does doll work on Barbies and toners and stuff like that. And so he works making women beautiful too. So, you know, now he uses a 3D format, but still, yet, I mean, that artistic gene is passing through. So, and family trade,
2: absolutely. Uh, now, I mean, you think about that, they really, when, they, when the JLA breaks up, to chase after the individual heroes, there was only two members that could have gone after Wonder Woman. Yeah, uh, either Zatanna, Zatanna, or whatever, or <laughs> or Black Canary, because no man can set foot on Paradise Island. Right. And you weren't going to send Black Canary because she's stuck with Green Arrow. And <laughs> right. uh, aside from that, you're really not going to send Green Arrow and Black Canary to go after Wonder Woman. You're just not. No. Uh, you want to at least have some chance of, <laughs> of <laughs> achieving your mission. So. Yeah. And- uh,
9: uh, no offense to some of the other chapters, but uh, this Zatanna actually did have a chance of defeating Wonder Woman, whereas, say, you know, poor Hawkman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. He drew the short straw this time around. Yeah, Z- Zatanna yeah. definitely is probably the most evenly matched of the heroes to take on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they, you know, one of the ways they get around this thing of how the the the, the younger members are so easily defeated is because the older members just regard them as adversaries. They don't right. regard them as friends. So they find it much easier just to smack the crap out of them because they don't really care. So.
8: Right. There's uh, yeah. no holding back on their part. Right.
9: And they're under their mind control. You know, uh, Hippolyta even uh, mentions that, that, you know, her daughter wouldn't normally throw a, a stone slab at somebody to try to stop them because right. she knew it would kill them. So, right. yeah.
8: But here's the thing these are all, you know, they're all Amazons. Why is it, when they know Diana is acting all wonky, why don't the rest of the Amazons kind of come help? Hello?
9: Oh, my God. Why did you bring that up? You just ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing mean, will ever yeah. ruin this comic for me, so <laughs> oh, don't worry yeah. about it. Don't pile on the princess, you know. Let's <laughs> all so jump I mean, on her and stop. her. i
8: you know they're all similar they all they, have, you know, super
9: strength and
8: yeah i'm sorry but why oh well you know we're gonna let this magician do it even though we all have the same powers as her and we know she's acting batshit. you know we're just gonna stand back
9: yeah that that's true that's a bad showing on the part of the warrior race of women that <laughs> you know <laughs> they're all standing around going you hey, know what's going on you know over there <clears throat> <Yeah. laughs>
8: You know, I mean, come on, people.
9: Now, in in their defense, I, you know, back in the in the Bronze Age and before, the Amazons weren't quite as warrior like as they are portrayed now. I mean, they were. I mean, they were sometimes, but most of the time, you saw them, you know, just in. Greci I'm not game. saying they had to soccer.
8: I'm just saying, just stand stop. in front of her. Stop. Hello, stop. that's stop. all they have to do. Yep. play Red
9: Rover. <laughs> <Make> <laughs> I, I did like that they did use Hippolyta, though, because that way they you could see how uh, Wonder Woman, you know, how you could see a supporting cast member react to how the original leaguer was under the mind control. Uh, I think that's the only one you see that. You know, I mean, you get in the Flash chapter, you get Ralph saying, hey, Barry, snap out of it. But you don't, you know, and I guess in a way, he's a supporting character for Flash in a way. But, you know, Hippolyta is definitely the, you know, the, the main yeah, uh, you know one of the main supporting characters in Wonder Woman, and uh, you didn't get that with any of the other chapters.
1: That's true. Well, the the biggest thing with Hippolyta though is like if my kid was acting batshit crazy, I wouldn't stand back and let it. I'd be like,
8: knock this crap off or go to your room. <laughs> Thank you. And Hippolyta is an Amazon. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. That's true. Thought-
9: <laughs> they definitely dialed her dialed her back to so Zatanna could go to the forefront, and they could have a good Zatanna Wonder Woman fight, you know, uh, but yeah, so now, yeah, you brought, thanks for bringing that up, now I can't get, <laughs> I can't get past it.
2: Tonight. I don't care what any of you say, this
1: comic is perfect, damn it, perfect. Don't bring logic into a Bronze Age comic, for goodness
9: sake. <laughs> yeah, well, they, it's not perfect, Rob, and I can prove it, because where's Brenda Pope when you need her? Because on, <laughs> on page one of this chapter, in panel three, Zatanna says Diana's name, and it's got two ends in it.
2: Oh you're right.
9: Oh no. Well
2: oh. This is like that stormtrooper bumping his head. Oh, I can't live with this. Oh, oh man. Well Just rip the whole, the rip whole show's apart. off. Forget it. That's it. <laughs> On to chapter four, I say. <laughs>
9: yes. I did like when you, when Wonder Woman's plane's flying away. There's this huge X on Paradise Islands. It's like, I guess it's like the landing strip for the invisible plane. But, you know, I thought this island was supposed to be hidden, and they've got this big giant
2: X. (laughs) Well, I always assume that it's hidden in the clouds, but once you pierce through the clouds, then there's the giant X.
8: Yeah, But do they still want people coming there saying, hey, here's where we want you to land, right here?
9: (laughs) Well, that's in case, you know, Whenever Steve Trevor gets wounded and comes in, you know, and oh. they reboot continuity so often they have to keep it open for him. Oh, That's true. Know, so.
8: gotcha. <laughs> I'm sorry, and I mean Chris. Said, Chris said this, and Andrew, our son, said this too because he was flipping through the comic. But I'm um, I love Zatanna as a character. However, to read her dialogue drives me. Banana crackers. I'm just like, I just skip over them. I'll be honest. I'm like, okay, I get what's going on from, from the pictures. I read the pretty pictures. I don't want to read this crap. Mm. It's backwards.
9: Yeah, that always bothered me having to read that. <laughs> it's a nice hook, but at the same time, it's – it's especially when it's a long one. It's just – it's – oh,
2: <laughs> I'm all for pictures on test. <laughs> having, having lettered a couple of things in my lifetime, I imagine that's really difficult to letter, too, because it just goes against your natural oh. – you know your inclination, natural mo- inclination, yeah. yeah, to sit there and go backwards. You probably had to really concentrate to sit there and, and do that on this thing. But
9: that's I mean, a good point. I never yeah. even thought about that. Yeah. So whoever lettered Zatanna's regular feature was like should have like asked for a raise
2: or something. <laughs> she never had much of a regular feature. Maybe that's part of the reason why. But uh, yeah, I, that's true. But it's just, it's nice that as the as the chapter closes out, we get one page by Perez. Uh, he paces their conversation really well. I love that silhouette panel just so simple yeah. but you get the feeling it's like it's it's sunset or something like you get the feeling of time passing going yeah. on Z- that Zatanna has been in the purple ray for quite a while so yeah. it has that yeah. feeling of time passing which i think is nice you know it's like the hour the hour is nigh kind of thing as the as the the chapters wore on so uh yeah i mean it's okay. it's another really fun iteration of the story
9: yeah it's it's kind of it was kind of strange it seemed like this one was a little bit shorter than some of the others and but the, the, the panel, the, the last page that Perez drew, really did seem like a part of that same you know narrative. It didn't bounce, it didn't change locales like yeah. some of the wrap-up of the previous chapters and the later chapters. It was still on Paradise Island, and you just picked up a few hours later, you know, after the Purple Ray. Which, speaking of the Purple Ray, where was Paula? I mean, she's always there with the Purple Ray, so... I mean, was she was she at like a you know, uh, ladies of the Third Reich reunion or something? I mean, what, where was she? You know, and they didn't have the panel. Paula, the little caption. Paula was you know used to be a you know villainous before Wonder Woman reformed her or whatever. You know that. So I kind of kind of missed that. I don't Maybe know.
8: they took Paula out of the story because I know Paula would have bitch slapped her. <laughs> <laughs>
9: maybe <laughs> maybe yeah that i mean now that 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 is that is true that like the the there's definitely you know maybe maybe one line of dialogue saying all the amazons are off training on a different island except for <laughs> except for me and my I, daughter just ran in there or something
2: <laughs> i think i think jerry conway had a lot of plate spinning he just didn't want to bog get bogged down with Footnotes about the other characters and stuff. So, yeah, and you
9: know, these these comics, while they're meant to be read, they're not meant to be, you know, overanalyzed by four nerds on a podcast. know
2: (laughs) 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 Too late for that.
8: (laughs) We are not nerds. We've had this discussion before. We're geeks. That's right. There's a difference. They're
9: geeks. That's right. We're geeks. Okay. All right. All right. Well, four geeks on a podcast.
8: You get laid on a regular
2: basis. You're a geek. (laughs) Well, I think we found the end of this segment.
6: <laughs> Geek here.
2: <laughs>
6: <laughs> Meanwhile, in Zimbabwe, so, uh, a general gets a call from America, uh, picks up the phone and pop. Here comes the Adam coming through his somehow makes sense way of uh, going through the phone, uh, Confused, Adam's like, I need your help. Uh, we need to get on a jet and go find Green Lantern, although he doesn't say that at the, at the point. Uh, General comes along with him because he believes that he may be, they may be in danger. Suddenly, flash of light, and Green Lantern is in the area. Out of nowhere, he shoots a construct hand out to snatch the plane out of the air and throw it upside down and backwards <laughs> away fr- from the action. And supposedly that gets, gets rid of the interruption. Uh, and uh, we are alluded to the fact that the, the jet will be safe because the, the, by the time he gets it under control, quote, they'll be 20 miles away. So he goes, uh, Hal goes to dig up the Appelax meteor. Not sure if I said that right. And suddenly here comes the atom flying from behind him. And kapow, knocks him on his butt uh, in a very... Looks like it broke his back. Matrix-type move pose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, this is uh, the Atom's subtle way of getting his friend's attention uh, and not starting a fight, but it starts a fight, surprise. Uh, and as the Atom tries to reason with Hal, Hal traps him in a very uh, kind of serving plate type of bubble, digs up the Apellex Meteor, flies away, and... Uh, leaves Ray underneath this this construct, to which Ray shrinks down into the molecules of the dirt, goes underneath and outside of the the construct, and says he's going to head back to the satellite. He does so. Uh, Snapper, Firestorm, and Zatanna are waiting for him as they kind of commiserate and uh, update each other on you know if they had any luck against uh, the other members of the League. Neither of them have. Uh, to which Reddy pops up and uh, says that the fellow league members are operating without a memory. Uh, to them, we are simply unknown em- enemies, and that gives them an advantage we may be unable to overcome for whatever reason. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta admit that little logic with, from uh, Red Tornado didn't really make a whole lot of sense, or at least didn't sound very uh, dun 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 worthy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's Red Tornado. I mean. <laughs> I think most of it, though, has to do with the fact that the newer members, power-wise, are just completely outclassed. I mean, I'm sorry. The Adam is not going to defeat Green Lantern. I mean, <laughs> like, of all these fights, this is one of the most mismatched. Although, I will say, he does get that one good shot in, in uh, that, that full-page shot that you mentioned. And it is literally a kapow moment of oh, Adam yeah. pasting Green Lantern. Effect. Yeah, I mean, that's the sound effect. Uh, I mean, what do you, as a... I mean, do you feel like that's even a fair shot, Chad, as a Greenlander fan, that Adam even got that much in?
6: Well, I know the Adam's power set it enough to know that it's not just that he shrinks down in size. Isn't his, like, he can throw his regular body mass or something into a punch no matter how what right. size he is? Right, right. Okay. So I, I don't I don't mind that he got his shot in, and I think the ring at this point can protect you from mortal injury, but I don't think it can protect you from a punch. So I mean, it's I, the only the only problem I have with it is that Ray's logic is I'm going to get my friend's attention by laying him out. <laughs> I'm going to try and reason with him afterwards, but my opening move is going to be to lay him out.
1: That's true. I mean, <laughs> if I was like hanging out with a buddy and he wasn't paying attention to me, I just freaking decked him to go. Hey, could you give me a beer? It probably is not going to go well.
6: I not
2: I, at all. I love the fact at the end of it when Adam is trying to talk into trying to talk sense into Greenlander. Greenlander is just playing possum. And he's just sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Meanwhile, he's putting up the, uh, the power ring to land a haymaker on the back of Adam's head. I just love that, that he's just like, Adam's just talking. Greener's like, yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And then just slams him in the back of the head. I love
6: that. Oh, it's, really? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think that, that's really good stuff. I mean, it's nice. I mean, are you a fan of, uh, well, let me, you know, let me ask Shag first because you're hit and miss on Gil Kane. What did you think of this, the art here?
1: I was going to say, did we even mention the artist, Who the artists were in this? It's Gil Kane, coached by Anthony Tolan. Yeah,
2: I think this is pretty good, Gil Kane.
1: Actually, I, I really like this. I think some of the, I like the panel layouts. I think there's some good fluidity to it. I think Hal's very, you know, on model. Um, I was, I'm pleased. You know, I, I you're right. I'm absolutely um, critical of Gil Kane's. You know, when when it's
6: not good, it's not good. And I think this is all done pretty well. Now, Chad, you're a fan, right, of Gil Kane's? Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm definitely a fan of Gil Kane. It's uh, that one panel where where uh, Ray is coming in from behind his head. Mm-hmm. One, Hal is just talking. He has no idea Ray's behind him, but he's got this like shocked look on his face, <laughs> like he does know. <laughs> and that that particular look, and that looks like my my digital copy here says page twenty nine. That particular look on his face is almost identical to the cover from uh, Green Lantern number twenty three. Which, ironically enough, is the first Silver Age Green Lantern comic I ever bought. Which is the threat of the tattooed man, and it's got this—it's got Hal flying in this window with this super surprised look on his face. And because that's the first Silver Age Green Lantern comic I bought individually, that's the first you know Gil Kane Hal face that pops into my mind. (laughs) So when I was reading this this particular chapter, I honestly did not think to look and see which of those uh you know if different artists do different drew different chapters so I looked at this face and I was like this looks like Gil Kane's face what's going on in this comic and then I went back and actually realized oh wait it is Gil Kane (laughs) I thought they were just taking inspiration from stuff which I thought was cool in the first place but the fact that they brought random artists in that you know like for instance Infantino for the Flash stuff later on I mean that's that's epic. And what Jim Aparo for the Phantom Stranger stuff.
2: And yeah, they got they got like the key artist for every chapter basically. And for the ones who yep. didn't have one, they got like like Wonder Woman didn't really have a key artist exactly, so they got Dick Giordano. You know, they got somebody safe. But yeah, I love that's one of my favorite things about this book is that it's not only does it feature all the JLA guest stars, it's an all star roster of artists too. They're getting the artist you're most familiar with. That particular character to come back and draw the chapter. You got Pat Broderick doing Firestorm, you know, like you said, Aparo doing Aquaman and Phantom Stranger, Flash doing by Infantino, and then you got Gil Kane. It's fantastic. It's just like this is everybody, you know. This is like all these legends were all still around and working, and it's just an it's just so neat to have them all together. And then you've got Perez doing the interstitials, so it's just yeah. uh, remarkable. I was going to say actually
1: the the interstitial page with Perez that that uh, Chad covered towards the end there. The art contrast was pretty stark. I mean, when you go from the Gil Kane panel of the Atom to the satellite in Snapper Car, that's not, for some reason, that felt like a not smooth transition for me. I, I can't put my finger on exactly why, because we've done it already, you know, with Broderick and, and things like that. But it, I don't know. It kind of stuck out to me.
6: Hmm. Well, it, not, not so much to me, because if you look, the, the only stuff going on with Gil Kane and, and his pages is Atom and GL. In this particular page, you have no close-up of the Atom. So, I mean, even though, you know, Snapper's face kind of looks like, you know, the kind of structure and the hairstyle and everything you think Hal would have, it's not that drastic. I mean, if they were to, like, super focus in on Ray's face, yeah, maybe. But he didn't draw any of these—if you were thinking it was Gil Kane up until this point— it's not really noticeable. For instance, I didn't notice it until a little later on because I was going to ask one of my questions that was going to be, Shag, is this the first time Gil's ever drawn Firestorm? Mm. Okay. So it wasn't that, it wasn't, it wasn't that jarring, at least for me.
2: <laughs> I like in the, uh, the background of that page of of, of of Zatanna and Firestorm just sort of sitting around in chairs. I just enjoy <laughs> that. Like, they're not really doing anything. They're just like, well, we failed, so I guess we'll just hang out and wait for everybody else to show up. <laughs> like, I don't know. It feels like they should be manning a computer or something, like looking out for the other heroes. Instead, we're just, you know, shooting the breeze. I would love to see what that that conversation was about. I don't think Zatan and Varstam ever talked all that much.
1: Oh, I'm sure it was a whole lot of him trying to talk to her. You know, like, um, hi, so what kind of music do you listen to?
6: (laughs) Was Power Girl not around at this time for him to hit on?
2: No, she (laughs) was stuck on Earth, too, during this story. (laughs) Ronnie, I always admired Ronnie's willingness to punch above his weight class.
1: (laughs) Well, that first Super Friends episode he's on, he's macking on Wonder Woman. There
6: you go. I like confidence. He's a player like Chad. That's right. That's right. Play on play on. Uh, one, of, <laughs> one, of, one of the things I like about this, and it's kind of subtle is if you're a green lantern fan, I love this about these these types of issues, uh, especially the the older stuff. When he grabs the jet with the construct hand mm-hmm. okay, no matter what your logic is for how the ring operates, whether it's plasma or it's based on you know the Jeff Johns approach with willpower, whatever it is, these are supposedly hard like constructs. He is grasping in a fist a jet plane closing his hands and fingers around it and hurling it away. But the entire thing still remains intact. No crumpled wings, no busted glass. The entire thing is, is just intact enough for the, the pilot to supposedly recover. And you would think that at least the inertia of the plane hitting the hand or the fingers <laughs> wrapping, wrapping around it would do some damage to this. But no, <laughs> it's totally fine.
1: I'm going to no prize it. You ready? Hal,
6: being a pilot, has too much respect for an aircraft to damage it. So he hurls it upside down and backwards away from the action and assumes the pilot is good enough to get it back under control? He's going to know
1: the ins and outs of that plane better than anyone
6: else? He does because he's a test pilot, but he doesn't know who's flying the plane. He doesn't know if they're as good as he is.
1: All right, all right. Now... I have a somewhat related question for you. With with Hal creating the hand and creating the shovel and creating the sort of sledge thing to hit uh, Adam with in, in the glass, it, Hal's mental state has been returned to the equivalent of like 1963 or whatever. When, when would Justice League start? Sixty 1960. 60. So his mental state has sort of been returned to as he was in 1960. By this point in um, 1982... Two. I assume Hal had progressed somewhat in his constructs and his behavior. Would you say that Hal's behavior here is indicative of the 1960 Hal, or is it more in line with the 1982
6: Hal? I'd say a little bit of both, uh, in the fact that even now, if you read the current comics, Hal is still making fists and planes and stuff like that, you know, so... It, when when it comes to Hal Jordan, he does either what he's imagined or just something simple, it, it, no matter how experienced he's been. If it was Kyle or if it was John or something, John the architect or, or, or Kyle being the artist, then, yeah, maybe I'd say it would be a little different. But this whole serving tray idea, Hal used that, like, I don't know, issue 23 of the current series right now. That's that's coming out right after Jeff John's left. So I, I mean, he he used that exact construct to scoop up uh, Kilowog from out of a fight. So I mean, that that that's a simple, simple construct, and he's yeah. still using that now despite his experience.
2: Fearless but not imaginative.
6: <laughs> <laughs> that's the tagline for How Jordan. Absolutely. The one thing I wanted to say about this issue, though, is I've had this thought randomly. In, in the past, but no more have I had it like than net right now. If we could get somebody to just take the original pages and recolor them, like, you know, Rod Reese or Hi Fi or somebody and just recolor the original art and just repackage it and sell it, this would be the perfect comic to do that with. I would buy the crap out of that. Because this is this is Adam versus Hal. Green and black versus this red and this red and blue. This should be like a brilliant little sequence but it's because of the newsprint and the coloring it's really dull to me and the the coloring the the, the way it's colored sort of lacks action kind of detracts from the action at least to me and i know it's an older comic and you know you guys read it when it was coming out probably
2: i didn't I got to dig, though. Thank you. I am going to completely ignore the fact that you're criticizing this book, Chad. I'm just going to completely just, just continue on with your point. I'm going to ignore any criticisms of this holy, sacred text. I, I think he's going way out of his way to make a point
1: that he was born like 15 years after this comic yeah, came out. It
2: did seem so. like, yeah. Now, you know, interesting you mentioned the
1: coloring. I've read some articles about people saying that, Old comics shouldn't be recolored in modern styles because they're not designed for those kinds of textures and, and transitions and stuff. However, I think you're right. that If this was printed – like if they did like an archive edition or something where it's on high-quality paper and, the, and they use the same color patterns. I mean they don't even have to do the really fancy you know, transitions and blending. Even if they use the same colors but on a high-quality paper or you know, it's a shocking white or whatever, this would really pop. You're right. You're absolutely right. Because my copy is very yellow, very flat. You're, you're. I, I hate to say, it. yeah. Chad's right. It, it, it stings it, a little. It, say that. I,
6: I appreciate newsprint. I really do, and I, I, I appreciate that the color palette and everything has to be a little different depending on the paper that you're using. But with the fact that you've got Infantino, LaParo, Gil and all, and Perez, and all this stuff in this this issue, this. This above any other issue would be like the perfect stuff to reprint. Same, same with like uh, Who's Who, although I don't know if I'd want Who's Who recolored. Who's Who's got all these various artists. If you recolored that and put it in a trade or something, that would be this incredible sampling of classic art with a new vibrance to it. And I think this issue would totally benefit from something like that. And I don't know if they've even reprinted this. I know they've been reprinting this JLA stuff, but I don't know if they've gotten up to this point yet.
2: No, I don't think they have. I'd buy, an well, absolute, I'd, I'd buy an absolute edition of this, sure. They probably got there in the
10: showcases, maybe. I don't
1: yeah, know. This
6: black and white,
10: right?
1: Right. Yeah. So I'm just trying to think if the archives ever did because they did. I have the first seven volumes of, or maybe it's six volumes of Justice League Archives, which are the big hardcover like fifty dollars books. You know, they're yeah, they're they're just too expensive. So I eventually had to quit but i mean they're they're really nice and this like like we said that would be gorgeous in that format
6: i've got the archives of the the golden age gl stuff cuz that's the only way you can get it and that looks i mean that's 1940s stuff and that's brilliant
1: well that's because it's freaking alan scott that's true badass <laughs> but we're off the reservation here overall yeah, so sorry. was it was it good
6: yeah i think so i mean uh, you know how how is a little strategic uh in in terms of playing possum like rob said Uh, The pairing, I agree the pairing of him versus the Adam is a little weird, but I don't know who else outside of the main jail uh, would be a good pairing with him. I mean, the only thing I can think of would be Green Arrow or Flash, but, you know, they're otherwise occupied. So, I mean, I I guess Green Arrow going up against Superman later on doesn't make much sense to me since uh, the history that Hal and, and Ollie have had. But, I mean... For an Adam versus G l story, I like
10: it Chapter Five: The Flash versus the elongated man. It takes place in the northern Italy on a poor man's lake Como it's really crappy looking uh, and the flash is racing through the the plains uh, he's looking for that Applax meteor. He stops to ask a um a random passerby uh if this is the Lake Como district, so he 's not too sure on his geography and the uh, the man in the uh, in the coat and hat uh, is revealed to be Ralph Dibney himself dressed uh, for the occasion. he was staking out the uh, lake until the flash would pass by, so he tries to grab the flash uh, the flash falls. Barry hits his head like uh, like he 's Hal Jordan or something, and <laughs> Barry no. And then while he's, uh, but it's a faint because while uh, Ralph is, is uh, checking his pulse, the flash starts to vibrate and creates a, an earthquake, uh, a a huge crack uh, forms in the ground and uh, Ralph falls into it. So the flash keeps racing and the, uh, there's a, the the kerpow moment Uh, on page 37 is uh, Ralph springing out of the, uh, of the crevice. Uh, to fight the, the Flash once again, but the Flash is uh, doing that trick where he's just a, a phantom or an echo, an optical illusion, uh, and the, um, Ralph is, is fighting basically just the ghost image. Uh, Ralph gets a super speed uh, punch in the gut and becomes just a mess of curly curlicues. <laughs> um, well, I mean, he's knocked out. The Barry Allen just spins down to wherever the, um, the Appalachian Meteor is, grabs the Meteor, and races back to Happy Harbor, which is the, the old HQ of uh, the, the original HQ of the Justice League, where Aquaman, Wonder Woman, uh, Green Lantern, and John Johns are waiting for, for him with their own Appalachs Meteors. Uh, and then they start to notice, uh, Flash immediately notices, well, what's going on? Uh, our, our HQ is trashed it's trashed. Yeah. And that's, that's not the only thing. Aquaman sure notices Wonder Woman's uh, costumes changed. Uh, <laughs> keep it in your pants, Arthur. So, uh, and then, well, they all real, realize that some time has uh, somehow gone by and they've, they've probably lost their memories of, well, they don't realize this now, but it's obvious they they've been reset. Their brains have been reset to a, to the, their earlier careers. Well, I guess to be fair, in Aquaman's defense, you know,
1: him and Mara probably weren't married at this point, right? As far as, as, far as he's considered in, in his memories.
2: Uh, no problem. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right, Chad. Because this in, in their brains, it's still like 1960. Right. And so, he's a free so, agent. Yeah. yeah he, can
1: be, he can be checking out one Woman's chest. Yeah.
2: How can you not? I mean, good Lord. Right. You know, um... I
10: said costume. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, it's the only thing different is the chest piece. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Well... Uh, and um, I, I forgot to mention, but the the art is by Carmine Infantino and Frank Giacoya, uh for this uh, for this chapter. Uh, and um, I gotta say, I, I I'm wondering why. I, I, I'm gonna ask you guys why you wanted me to do the synopsis for these particular characters. Is there, a, I, because I feel like I th- I drew the the short straw, in the sense that um, uh, Carmine Infantino is like he, he's one of those artists who. Um, I took, took, the, took the same route as uh, Jack Kirby did. Jack Kirby did. Uh, a lot of these artists that, that became more themselves over time, uh, and their, their tics or their style became more and more extreme. And uh, in the case of Kirby, I'm, I'm more than happy with his work, and I think Gil Kane is another artist that were very distinctive at first, uh, but didn't really break away from whatever house style they were working on. Um, uh, at, at you know in in the in the Silver Age, for example, but Carmen Infantino is someone whose style became so extreme uh, and extreme in the in the wrong way for me. Yeah, I hear you know what you're saying.
1: I mean? Well, to sort of answer your question, I mean, what we've done is we've worked with a you know the the Fire and Water podcast. We're celebrating a hundred episodes which is great and on top of that you know we've got a lot of other pot we've got you know the power record show we've got who's who we've got hero points all of the other stuff and we want to bring in everybody who's been part of that family and you know if you look at like uh, the firestorm chapter well we weren't going to have you do that one because you know i'm on that one with me and because it's marsh manhunter we got frank for that one you know we got the black canary one well we had to bring in count druncula because he got the black canary blog so i mean everyone kind of fit where the where they went and then, you know, we had a couple things we had left. It's like, you know what? Cisco has got to be part of the celebration. And you know, flash is pretty damn cool.
4: So I'm (laughs) just saying,
1: yeah, I hear what you're saying about Carmen Infantino, but if he's got to be
10: on a book in the, in the eighties, it should be flash. And this is the right place for him. And this is a no brainer for, to to pair up these two. Yeah. Uh, Obviously uh, the, the both started out, um, you know, in uh, together if you will, and uh, by, this, by this same artist, who, who looks a little more solid than usual there under uh, Giacoya's inks. I, I, so. I was about
2: to say, I think part of Infantino's yeah. excesses, as he got older, got reined in here by Giacoya.
10: And I, I think he's having a lot more fun drawing Ralph Dibney than he is The Flash. Um, I don't know if he was, you know, he'd been drawing The Flash for decades, 30 years <laughs> at this point. But his, uh, his Ralph Disney is, is, is a lot of fun and, you know, a lot of little curls. And uh, while the Flash is pretty much what, what we'd expect, you know, a little stiffer. But I guess he is Barry Allen. So man, it, I think it think makes it. sense.
1: I, I bet some of the shortcuts he had to take, though, like look at that splash page where, you yeah. know, elongated uh, means it, coming out of the ground. And you look at Flash and you look at his speed trail. You know, we don't often think about the fact that he had to draw Barry's head, what is that, 40 times in that one speech round? I mean, that's a hell of a lot of work. No wonder
10: he was taking shortcuts after a while. Yeah, you probably had to get really tired of doing that. (laughs) Yeah, I do like that. Yeah, But but it does also, I mean, anytime the Flash is up against a normal speed enemy, um, there's always this, you know, it's just like he's leaving a pink blur behind him but how fast is he really going if the elongated man can catch him right right okay. <laughs> so in this case it it becomes a trick where he tricks him into but still he could have raced off and left uh, the the rubber man in uh, in his wake and, uh, and you know Ralph would never have caught him normally so it's just, it's kind of a it's kind of a cheat but it's a necessary cheat i suppose
2: he's almost humoring Ralph to interact with him at all
10: right i mean you said they're the, they're the perfect pair to put
1: together well Really, nobody can be paired against the Flash. I mean, his power level is so ridiculous that most of his comics fall apart that anyone could ever touch him. It's for fun. It's adventure hero stuff. I mean, if you want to see the best real-world example of this would be in the new X-Men movie. You know, the Quicksilver scenes where Quicksilver does all that stuff in the blink of an eye. It's, that's what the Flash would be like. But, you know, you've got to have adventure.
2: You've got to have Ralph grab him. Plus, it gives this, this chapter an extra bit of gravitas of that. It's his old friend. As it yep. mentions on the Big Splash page that Ralph feels like a traitor attacking his friend. And these these two are among the closest friends in the JLA in terms yeah. of the old member and the new member. So it just gives it that extra little bit of oomph to it. One little detail that, that Infantino threw in that I loved is when Flash punches him, that he lays on the ground and he's all full of those curlicues, as you mentioned, quite, As if yep. Ralph's body loses its solidity when he's knocked unconscious, which I sort right. of enjoy. I like that he's just like sort of a pile of rubber. When he, <laughs> That's when he doesn't think, when he, you know, he's not like concentrating on being conscious. That was my favorite panel
10: easily. Yeah. Uh, it's so silly, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, well, the, these, and these guys met very, very early. So um, this being a, a time when Barry Allen doesn't remember him at all, it means it's, it's very early for the, uh, the Justice League. it's a, it's a clue. At, and I, I thought for sure that um, while I was reading it the whole way through the whole uh, Jle 200 uh, entirely, uh, when Barry was, uh, hit his head on the rock, I thought, oh, is this the the first time, will this be the first of the original heroes to, you know, to get uh, pwned
2: <laughs>
10: by one of the, the, the new generation? And it might have worked, too, because it's such a uh, you know a dark horse kind of story, where there's no way Elongated Man's going to win a fight against Barry Allen, and would, you know. It could have happened. <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah, that would have been an interesting angle to have one of them wake up, you know, and view uh, from the classic, of course, you know, getting hit on the head wakes you up as opposed to just really damaging your brain for a long period of time. You know, so. <laughs> well, they're already brain damaged, so. Well, that's I mean, true. Um, you could
10: have, that, that could have uh, fixed them.
2: One other detail that I've always noticed over the years is that the uh, the page with Perez, the, the final page of the interstitial shot between chapters uh, five and six, is when Flash runs into the Secret Sanctuary and Green Lantern are talking to him, they say, hi, Lantern, hello, Flash, and it's done in a lettering style that doesn't match the rest of the page, and it doesn't match ah. the rest of the book, which makes me think that either there was never any dialogue there, and at the last second, they realized it looks weird. Or you know the word balloons fell off or something. <laughs> something happened. That, that, well, how about or this? Maybe
1: it, oh, go ahead. How about this? I, maybe sure. it said hi, Barry, hi, Hal. That's what I think. And somebody said, "Wait a minute!" In 1960 or 1961, they didn't know each other's identities.
2: You know, that's a good thought. Maybe so. You're right. They didn't.
10: Didn't they? I mean, it, it was very. I, I'm I'm currently reading those um, American chronicles of the American comic books books from. Um, uh, tomorrow's. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just in 1962. The Justice League is brand new. Uh, and they've already got the story where uh, Flash and Green Lantern are the first, uh, the first heroes in the Justice League to, uh, aside from Batman and Superman perhaps, to, to tell each other, discover each other's identities and keep the secret between themselves. So very, very early, these two characters knew each other uh, outside their uh, costumed identities very early, like 1962.
2: Huh. But maybe so they I wouldn't mean, want to say that in front of the others, though, because the others don't.
10: No, that's right. Uh, that's, that's fair point. Fair point. Yeah. point. Yeah. But editor editor the, was on the ball. Yeah, and those two would be the characters to, that would interact with each other. So, you know, yes. they'd probably be the Better, better friends.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like I said awesome. it's, it's, it's a, like I said it's another. It's a nice, you know. I mean, Infantino certainly continued to draw the Flash, you know, many years after this. I mean, not every like Aparo's, you know, shot at Aquaman was like one of his last moments drawing Aquaman. Uh, Infantino kept going for a long time after this, but still, I feel like this was like one of the last guests. It was, like a truly classic looking fla- classic. I got that word in Flash drawn by you know the guy who's most associated with him. So it was. It was. Yep. You know. It was a, again a perfect way to to bring to rope him in and rope in another piece of comic book of character history here in this chapter is to get Infantino to do it.
10: And Wonder Woman's uh, last line uh, about her costume—it's been changed, and I don't know how or why—feels like it should be a meme on the internet. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that that could be used for a number of costumes she's had to wear.
2: <laughs>
7: chapter six featuring Green Arrow and Black Canary versus Batman. We open up on the Carolina coast in a very swampy marshland and Black Canary and Green Arrow are tracking Batman and Green Arrow is not happy to be there. He's complaining pretty much like he's been doing this entire issue. Uh, And Dinah says, you know what, you didn't have to be here. But he's, you know, being the typical liberal but very chauvinistic character that Green Arrow is and saying, no, no, I can't leave you alone to deal with the situation. Um, and then, when they least suspect it, the Batman shows up in a dramatic one-page splash. Um, and in case any readers didn't realize that it was the Batman, Green Arrow says so. The Batman. One text word that kind of interrupts the page. The Batman knocks down Green Arrow in a in a move sort of like the introduction the introduction to the Batman animated series, where he just tackles a guy and you don't see what happens, but. Batman just brings his cape over Green Arrow, and the next thing you know, Green Arrow is in handcuffs. But just before that, Green Arrow lets slip with his arrow. It misfires, bounces off a tree, and (sighs) the arrow strikes Dinah in the head. (laughs) Not the greatest moment for either one of them in comics history, but luckily it was a flat-tipped arrow, and it just knocks her unconscious instead of giving her a lobotomy. Green Arrow is not happy about the results, and he screams very sort of petulantly, You can't do this to me. You can't do this to me. And Batman, very much as Batman would, says, I already have, and takes off. <laughs> Next page Dinah is recovering from her head wound and making a face that could very suggestively be taken out of context. <laughs> She grabs one of Green Arrow's acetylene torch arrows and sort of begrudgingly breaks free, breaks him free of his handcuffs. And he's he's still really upset about being taken down by Batman. And he's still really upset about being called in on this assignment anyway. He didn't want to join the Justice League again, but here he is, and he's just going to be crabby about it. She gives him the option, again, of just sitting around and not joining him, but he won't leave her. So, they continue their search for Batman down the Carolina coast, and Batman has this cute little device that tracks the Appalachian meteor, which goes ping ping. Lots of fun for that. Um, when they do finally catch up to him, Black Canary lets out her sonic scream, her canary cry, and it seems to knock Batman out, but when they get close to him, they find that it was just a dummy, and the bat has already slipped away with the meteor fragments. Dun, 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 dun. Um, when we next find them, um, Green Arrow and Black Canary are back on the satellite, and Green Arrow is just ranting about how dumb he feels and how stupid this whole situation is and how they've pretty much already lost. And everyone's trying to calm him down, but it's not, it's not working. He's, he's really feeling inferior, and he's, he's just reinforcing the ideas for the reason that he quit back in issue 181. And the Atom says, "I've got to agree. It's looking grim." Basically, concurring that it's a lost cause. Already, all six of their missions have failed to recover the satellites, and they need to start planning for what the ha- what goes on when they lose this whole battle. What what happens when all of the meteor fragments are assembled? Back in uh, back down on planet side, the six original members of the Justice League minus Superman have gathered and. Batman is telling them about his experience and saying, you know, I was, I was confronted by Green Arrow, but it was strange. He didn't look the same way. He almost looked like he had been redesigned by Neil Adams or something. And they, they <laughs> sort of confer that they, they've been feeling the strange compulsion to bring all of these meteor fragments together, but they don't know why. But when they bring the, the meteor fragments together, they begin to sort of glow with this eerie light that none of them can explain.
1: Another. Dun, dun, dun. There it
2: is. Another one.
7: <laughs> the art in chapter six was provided by none other than Brian Boland. Woo, cannot be it. Yeah. With coloring by Adrian Roy. The first time I saw this, that Brian Boland was the artist for this chapter, I was like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. He was well known for, uh, Batman, the killing joke. And then I had to <laughs> put a timeline back in my head and realized, wait a minute, that was years later. Um, And I actually went back and looked at what had Brian Bowen done for DC Comics before Justice League of America, issue 200. And it wasn't a whole lot. Um, He had done a few covers for Green Lantern and, I think, Action Comics. But this was actually only his third interior art uh, work for DC. He had done one short story in Mystery uh, Mystery in Space and one short story in The... Madame Xanadu one shot that came out in 1981. Oh, jeez. Uh, but other than that, this was his, his this was his third exposure. So for a lot of people who picked up this book regularly, this might have been the first time they saw Brian Boland's name credited and his work.
2: It was mine. It was certainly mine.
7: Yeah. I think, um. think. the other question after I was like, oh, after I read this was why 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 on earth weren't these pages done by Neil Adams? He was well known for all of these characters. Um, and I think it was just he wasn't working with DC Comics at, in the early 80s. He wasn't there. He wasn't available.
1: That's probably exactly what it is. I mean, we ran into that so many times on Who's Who. It's like, you know, why wasn't this entry done? Why wasn't this entry done by Neil? So it's got to be what I it think is.
7: Every other char- I think every other little chapter and vignette in the story was illustrated by somebody who had a history with that character. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this was the exception. Now, again, eventually... Um, Brian Boland did Batman the Killing Joke and he did one of the most beautiful covers for action comics, which depict Black Canary burning her, uh, her Justice League International costume. Um, but that wasn't until 1988. So that was almost a decade after this. I like the headband costume. But anyway, you know, it's it's grown on me. Um, and I'm actually mentioning this because I'm just starting to cover those comics with with her in that costume. Um, I think what it is was I had always seen it drawn by Kevin Maguire from Justice League International, and I didn't like the way he depicted that costume. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing it done by other artists, it has started to grow on me. You
2: know, that, that, that costume was designed by Stephen DeStefano from Amazing Men. Mm. And uh, he is sort of like grimly proud of the fact that his costume design was burned on a cover by Brian Baldwin. <laughs> 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 <okay, laughs> I,
7: I was just asking this question. How did you how did you know that he designed it?
2: Uh, he t- told me. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>
7: the reason I was asking, because I, I think the first published appearance of the costume was in Who's Who, issue two. Yes, probably. Um, which, where it was drawn by Terry Austin. Right. Mm-hmm. But the first in-story appearance was in Detective Comics 554, which was six months later. And the cover was by Klaus Jansen and the interior work was by Jerome Moore. So there were three different artists, and none of them were Stefano.
2: <laughs> I, I think the same thing happened with uh, Elongated Man. I yeah, remember. he was working for DC at the time, and he did costume. He redesigned a bunch of costumes, okay. and so that was one of them. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, t- t- clearly this, you know, quote-unquote, should have been done by Neil Adams because, you know, in fitting with the tradition of all the other chapters, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, I mean, talk about getting a perfect guy, though. I mean, this art, the art in this story, in this chapter, is absolutely gorgeous,
7: and it doesn't look like the art in any of the other chapters. No. It really does stand out.
2: Mm-hmm. And you see what a master of facial expressions Boland is, especially on page, I guess it's 43 of the whole book, yeah, yeah. between the one face of Black Canary rubbing her temple, <laughs> and, and then the, then the on the uh, panel four, where she's kind of making a scrunchy face, because oh, yeah, she's, she's mad at Green Arrow, who's being... Compl- like, that's a bunch of all different, you know, really distinct facial reactions yeah, and he's yeah. he's great at all of them. I mean, this is just such a beautifully drawn chapter. I mean, I'm not going to say it's my favorite one because there a lot of them are all really good, but they also the pacing of it too. I love that Batman takes the time to turn around and just stick it to green arrow
11: yeah uh, you know that he yeah, doesn't I mean, just he, he could
2: have just ran he could have just left <laughs> but he but he actually's like, "Hey, Green arrow, nan yeah, nah. you know I That's love this
7: <laughs> really you also you kind of get the feeling like he didn't I don't know that he needed to even confront them at all, but he did. Yeah, it's certainly it's this chapter definitely makes Batman look great and Black Canary and Green Arrow not so great. They they are taken down pretty, pretty effortlessly and unglamorously. Um, I I I used to do a feature on my blog called Trauma Tuesday, where like every Tuesday I would just show a a Golden Age um, panel of Black Canary being knocked unconscious um, because it happened in every one of her appearances, and here one more time. Um, she's going after Batman, and she gets knocked unconscious by a wayward arrow from her boyfriend. It's just, she couldn't catch a break.
1: <laughs> but, it's fi- but it's fitting for her history, though, and this issue is all about history. So.
7: <laughs> That's true. Good point.
1: Now, if you want to have some fun while you're reading this, though, follow the bouncing hat on Ollie and notice how many times it changes direction. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, it's you know got a garish rake to the right, and then it's got a garish rake to the left, and it just goes back and forth and back and forth throughout the whole thing. Stays
2: on his yeah. head the whole time, though. That's pretty impressive.
1: It is on his head. It just keeps swinging around. My
2: uh, my Mego Green Arrow doll always kept losing his hat. He could never keep that thing on his head.
1: <laughs> well, if, if you can't if you can't get Neil Adams, Brian Bolland is a exceptional. I mean, substitute. the
2: opening panel is so atmospheric of Batman sitting oh, yeah. in the in the swamp mm-hmm. with the frog and there. I mean, it's just it's it's such a great intro. Uh, intro okay. shot.
1: Feels like a man thing or swamp thing page. Yeah.
7: And so I like that every chapter has that um, that splash page that like that one page that's that's just an action shot of the the, yeah. two, the characters. Um, and this one between Batman, Black Canary, and Green Arrow, it's no, it, it, it's not lacking in any of those those actions. I mean, it, it could be a poster in that. That's just very well done. <laughs> I totally. Except, except I, it's I I'm just I'm bothered by the one little text bubble on that page on page forty one with black with Green Arrow saying the Batman. Because he's just finishing his sentence, but he's not shouting. It's not a surprise. The Batman, he's not pointing him out. <laughs> but everything else about the page looks very, very, there's a lot of movement to it. It's a very dramatic action action scene. Um, well,
1: the, well, the nice thing is it's in Batman's cape, so you can scan the page and just black it out.
7: Black <laughs> yeah, there it you out. go. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure it. many people have.
1: Yeah. Okay, so until you mention it. I guess, and maybe Rob said it, and I—I I don't typically listen to Rob, but I didn't notice that every single chapter has a full-page splash. Yep, I didn't pick that up. Yeah,
2: that's one of the reasons I love this comic so much—is that it's as good as the story is. It's also a visual delight. You know, I mean, it's just got so much great art in it. And then he yeah. said every chapter's got that splash thing. It's really gorgeous. And then you've said you've got the, the wrap-up with the Perez doing the one page. And I just mm-hmm. like the continuing of, of Green Arrow just being a giant pain in the ass. I mean, he really is <laughs> a giant. Yeah.
7: And you, you got to side with that. Like, why did you even come here? Why, why are you here if all you're going to do is complain?
2: He, yeah. He's following the boobies. I mean,
1: let's face it. He's really? like, my girlfriend says, come, so I'm on my way. Yeah, yeah. If Black Canary was my
2: girlfriend, I'd do the same thing. You gotta nail that down.
7: I did think I again, going back to the artist and the reason why why Brian Bowen, it must have just been, hey, you've got you've got some game and this will be a nice showcase for people who haven't seen you yet. Um but I was even looking at like in the in the few years prior to this, Mike Grell had been drawing Green Arrow and Black Canary backups in either world's finest or action comics. And given what he would eventually do with Green Arrow and Black Canary, like what if what if these pages had been Mike Grell pages? That would have been crazy.
2: Hmm.
1: When did when did Camelot three thousand get published?
2: After like not too long after that. That was like in eighty three. So this. That's was...
1: what I'm wondering. If this was like a you know we know we're going to do balling on something. Let's let's get him hmm. out there. So does this mean Batman had like a loose cowl laying around, or did he take his own off?
2: I always assume he has an extra one because good lord, he wouldn't want to be spotted in his uniform with his mask hmm. off. Or maybe he I had have... the maybe he had the Batboat. Because they're at the beach. Mm-hmm. So but maybe he had the bad Boat
7: part. What is filling out the headspace? Coconut. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> is that just a bad football? Or what does he putting there? <laughs> okay. And why did he leave it? Why did he bother with that misdirection?
2: To piss off Green Arrow. <laughs> I, I, think it, I think it buys him like an extra 30 seconds. And if you're Batman, all you need is 30 seconds to get away.
1: Yeah, because he's hauling ass down the beach uh, the other direction. They just don't see him.
2: Right, exactly. They're facing the wrong way. Well, they're wasting their time sneaking up on him. He's busy again jumping in the bad boat and taking off. So,
7: even though he clearly had a lot to fear from actually going one to one with them, because well, that's true. <laughs> the last time, it only took him a third of that time.
11: Chapter Seven: Hawkman versus Superman in Midway City, Hawkman raids the Midway City Museum for ancient weapons, including a 16th century corsac an iron mesh net, a crossbow, a kraniquin, and a flanged mace, loading himself down with weapons, as he is charged with going and retrieving the meteor that is found in Greenland that is going to be pursued by the Man of Steel himself. Greenland, being more than 6,000 miles from Midway City, Hawkman has only one way to reach it, and that's to fly straight up in a parabolic arc through Earth's upper atmosphere, and then returning down in Greenland to get there much faster than he could hope to fly with his Thanagarian anti-grav wings. As he comes down into Greenland, uh, Hawkman spots the very recognizable outfit of the red and blue blur known as Superman. Catching him with his net, Hawkman lays into him with one of his weapons, smashing the the faux Man of Steel, revealing it to be one of Superman's robots with a big warrump. And uh, so Hawkman's like, of course, he should have known that there was no way that Superman could send, uh, could go himself to retrieve the meteor because the meteors are in fact made of kryptonite. So he would have sent one of his uh, Superman robots, which is why he decided to take medieval weapons, knowing that the robots would be expecting scientific weapons. Unfortunately, the real Man of Steel shows up and uh, things get real, real fast for Katar Hall as the Man of Steel closes in And then things turn badly.
12: (laughs) Yeah, Superman lays out Hawkman and retrieves his meteor, monologuing that Hawkman was right about using his robots to accomplish his goal, but that was only part of it. Apparently, he used a thin, transparent lead coating, because comics, (laughs) to shield him from the kryptonite rays. And with Hawkman out of commission, he can return the meteor to his friends in the League. Hawkman drifts almost into orbit and, and is about to fall back to Earth when he is transported to, of all places, Ron, secondary home of Adam Strange. On Ron, Adam and his wife Alana are flying along, talking about Adam's feelings towards being a transplant to the planet. And you know, about a, a couple of years from now, somebody's going to come along and completely screw up their world. <laughs> when they get a, with, when they get word that a Zeta beam was activated. Adam is shocked to discover that the newest arrival is Hawkman, and he gets on the horn right quick with the Justice League as the recent Rand-Thanagar war has the Ranians a mite touchy about Hawkman being on their planet, and I'm really glad that resolved itself and never flared up again.
11: Oh, no, never, never had any trouble.
12: The elongated man retrieves Hawkman from space, and once he revives Katar, tells his story about getting smacked around by Superman. Meanwhile, at the secret sanctuary, former headquarters to the Justice League. The founding members look at the meteors they have assembled through the lead-lined glass and talk about how they don't know why they are there. Suddenly, the meteors crack open, and Green Lantern remembers everything. The Apalakalaxians, as I like to call them, The invaders are reborn and discuss their cunning plan. Apparently, they planted seed clones of themselves and placed post-hypnotic suggestions into the minds of their adversaries to retrieve them when a new cosmic pattern occurred. Now they can begin their contest to see who will be the next emperor. But there's one problem. The Justice League. The League put up a good fight, but eventually they are all taken down. The Apalachalaxians decide that instead of fighting clone armies of each other, that the combat will be more direct and in groups, so that they and so they leave to get their party started. The League wakes up later to see Green Arrow standing over them, bow drawn and ready for a fight. Things calm down in a hurry as the newer leaguers realize the original members were under some kind of mind control. After getting intel on where the Apalachalaxians are, entire league rushes into battle in one of the most awesome two-page splash shots of the team ever ever and that's the end of the chapter
1: don't don't forget that it includes a big uh, middle finger to the avengers
12: yes (laughs) (laughs) absolutely
2: they had it coming oh jeez my, uh, you know, my main thought when when reading specifically the Hawkman Superman chapter, is this: is that if I ever become a millionaire, and I plan to, if I ever become a millionaire, I will hire Jerry Conway, George Perez, and Brett Breeding, to do some interstitial pages of this comic, and it features all the new leaguers with all the old leaguers' names on pieces of paper in a hat, <laughs> in Green Arrow's hat. And Hawkman pulls out Superman Just goes, oh shit Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, even uh, even uh, as a kid I was like, oh what <laughs> the hell Why? How did Hawkman
11: I mean, I mean, I don't know who else they would get uh, but, How about Zatanna Send the one with magic I after guess uh, so, well but she was already
2: I mean you couldn't send anybody else to go to Paradise Island But it's like, I love that Hawkman is grabbing These old weapons, That's going to make A friggin' difference
11: It's like, I got what it. they are. see what Really, what Hawkman should have done is just taken his spaceship and <laughs> shot him from orbit. That's about the only way he could fight Ooh. Superman here. Especially it's, this Superman, because this is yeah. the, I can do anything, anything you can do. I can do I, better. I can right. do anything better than you, Superman. So, I know. <laughs> the, the only advantage that Hawkman has in this fight is that it's drawn by Joe Kubert. And, and so he looks fantastic, he and looks Superman awesome. looks a little lackluster. Hawkman yeah. <laughs> looks <laughs>
2: amazing. Kubert did his usual tremendous job. Hawkman looks fantastic in this chapter. Really does. But here's
12: yeah. the thing. Uh, over on Tales of the JSA, Scott Gardner and I were really hard on Joe Kubert's covers to All-Star Squadron. And we always felt kind of bad about it because we didn't think he was a bad artist. We just didn't like his take on those characters. I absolutely love his golden age look in Superman here. Mm. It was amazing. I, I, I was reading the book. I'm like, this looks great. So uh, uh, Hawkman looks great and looks better than Superman. But that doesn't mean that his Superman doesn't
11: look fantastic. Oh, well. no. The, the, the thing with with Kubert's Superman is that to me it just looks so different because you're used to seeing... Like um, uh, Wayne Boring or Kurt Swan, you know, the kind of barrel chested, uh, big burly, not burly, but big athlete type body. Whereas, you know, I I always think that reason why Hawkman looks so good is that Hawkman had a build very similar to Tarzan you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hubert obviously did great kind of you know pulp heroes like that and hawkman always looked the role of a pulp science fiction hero i like the superman too I, that's a good i didn't put 2 and 2 together there uh mike with the idea that it, it does kind of harken back a bit to the golden age superman but looking at it that that splash page where uh superman just punches through hawkman's mace and you see him reeling back with his right and you know that right's going right to hawkman's jaw <laughs> <You know? laughs> No we're, we're missing is like Ganor going, one punch, you know
12: <laughs> no, I'd pay good money to have seen Joe Kubert draw like a like a Golden Age Superman story. I really would have because it you know he he obviously had a good sense of the character, and you know the the action in this sequence is just amazing from like word go, even grabbing the weapons has a lot of energy to it yeah uh i I'm kind of glad they explained what a kranaken is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Because I would have had no idea, and now I know that that is a flanged mace, which now answers the question of what some of the He-Man guys used to carry. So I'm glad for that as well. It well, took me. I was I was perplexed by
1: the labels. I was like, Hawkman has to label this stuff. You know, for, like his job, he knows what they are.
11: But yeah, but it, you, it's, it's in the museum. That's what I didn't pick up on. But now, yeah. it, now that it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it, it always it always amuses me. You read these Silver Age Hawkman stories, and it's like, oh, you know, uh, uh, you know, IQ is attacking Central City, and suddenly half the half the crap is gone from the Midway City Museum. You know, <laughs> it's like I don't. There couldn't possibly be a connection here. I don't. Well, 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 did it did it Hawkman
12: have like the most complicit, you know, police captain helping yes. him out as well?
11: So yeah, George Emma was like, oh yes, go ahead. I... <laughs> Let's be honest, though. If
1: IQ was attacking anywhere, Hawkman really—he probably just grabbed a pack of bubble gum or something simple to take that, to take out IQ.
11: Really, IQ is IQ's got more going for him than you're giving him credit for. But considering how little you're giving him credit for, that's also not saying much.
1: <laughs> All right. So I, the Perez stuff. I love the page of Hawkman just flipping end over end in space. I mm-hmm. think that looks oh awesome.
11: yeah. Well, and and the only thing the, well, the thing that made me think of with this is that Hawkman one of the things that's well established with the, the silver and bronze age Hawkman is that him and Hawk girl, because of their Thanagarian nature and their wing harnesses can survive in vacuum for five minutes. But, so, but him being unconscious, it's like, normally it's like, okay, well I've got to go outside and I've got to run and get the ship started or something. And then I got to get back inside, but being unconscious, like I said, flipping end over end, completely prone. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, heavy stuff right there. But I love that the background doesn't change.
12: It's one shot of the background split over Mm -hmm. the panels, right? But Hawkman keeps changing, split by those you know those L shapes. And you know, I I read the entire issue in you know while uh, before getting to my section, and while all of the guest artists were fantastic, it's just I just kept going to those Perez sections and just drooling at, (sighs) at how awesome. I mean, he. You know, Luke mentioned that, you know, you think of more of the the Wayne Boring Superman who was, you know, barrel-chested. And Boring, uh, uh, Rob's going to hit me on this one, but you draw, like, a character to be a certain number of heads high, and I forget which it is. I don't know if it's seven heads high or, Eight. or whatever. Eight. Eight heads high. He would specifically draw Superman nine heads high, so he would be that much taller, so... You know, he gave him that more, more. You know, that larger than life thing. Swan had, you know, a more naturalistic Superman, but you know, it it was still kind of a larger than life character. The way Perez draws Superman in this issue, and in his run of Justice League in general, is basically how Superman should have looked in the '80s, in my opinion. Between him and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise his name. So, but but seeing the, the the Perez art in the in the rest of this section with Adam Strange, you know he doesn't miss a beat with anything. No,
11: uh, no. Go ahead. No, I'm agreeing with you. Is just is
12: just the the cityscapes, and even even in the in the place where Hawkman's on the table, there's a, there's like intricate backgrounds everywhere. It is so gorgeous to look at.
11: Yeah, and even uh, even just little like the the one beat that stands out to me is uh on page 52 when we get the, the the panel three there with Adam and Alana flying and and they're talking about uh you know do you miss earth Adam and and so they're you know they're they're talking as lovers and the just one panel there of Alana it tells you everything you need to know about her you know Mm-hmm. And, you, and it conveys all of her emotion just in one face. I mean, Perez does ladies' faces all um, fantastic. You know, there's no question about that. But even then, just a character that, you know, you could have done this panel as just a throwaway. It's not really that important to the story. But the, the, the attention to detail is always there with Perez.
2: Yeah, speaking of um, detail, there's a couple of things that, that really, he really pulled out. I mean, yeah, of course, he does a great job of the whole issue. But um, the, the, the last part of the sequence where the Palax aliens are beating up the original JLAers. First of all, that close-up of Aquaman getting all the moisture sucked out of him mm-hmm. by the wood yeah. creature is amazing. And then the, the the final one where they've managed to subdue all the JLAers except for Wonder Woman and they gang up on her. And the crystal creature smacks her in the face with those crystal <laughs> shards. And I'm like, oh, it just looks like it really hurts even though that's Wonder Woman. And you know she can't be yeah. hurt. But just the takata at taka and you just feel like, oh man, Perez just completely sold that. Utterly.
11: And I love I love he does the the Jim Aparo hitting him so hard their face explodes routine <laughs> as well. I never tire of that. Yeah the one I like in there is uh back a couple of pages when the Martian Manhunter does the uh the Mortal Kombat uppercut on the guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like crouch and high punch, you know <laughs> Or if you if if you prefer, he hits him with a show Ruken, you know, so.
12: <laughs> I, I've, I've always really liked the way he drew Batman in this era as well. He gave him, you know, some people aren't really down with the expressive cowl uh, where the eyes kind of, you know, squint or whatever, like they're really eyes and not, you know, where, you know, the slits where his eyes would be. But I think, you know, especially, you know, having first really seen his artwork in Crisis and the way he drew Batman there, like the way he looks here. I mean, on the page, you know, the two page spread, those first two panels of him waking up and then we get the POV shot of Green Arrow. It's just God, everything. But but it's really funny in that in that in that we're going to go kick all the ass. How much? (laughs) All of it. uh, (laughs) Shot is you've got, you know, Superman's flying across. Red Tornado is, you know. Going into battle, everyone's looking serious, but Batman's the one pointing, going, "We're going this way." <laughs> <laughs> but they I, have ba- they have no battle cry, nor do they need one.
1: <laughs> I, I just think it's sweet of uh, Red Tornado, Superman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Firestorm, Marshmallow to travel so slow <laughs> yeah. so that Green Arrow, uh, Black Canary, Batman can all keep pace with them. I think that's very kind of them.
11: Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the old joke about the Justice League getting tired of fighting crime only a few blocks from the Hall of Justice because Batman <laughs> has to drive there. <laughs> right. <laughs> See,
12: I, I, I like that. The smart one. Yeah. to ride
11: on Green Lantern's <laughs> on <his> shoulder. So. <laughs> I, really I like good. that. I like that. I'm uh, going home. Yeah. It's you <laughs> I like that Perez uh, keeps with again the the Aparo style where everyone is in is in light except Batman's face is always shadowed on top of his cowl. Mm-hmm. I like that. I mean, yeah, th- but this, I mean, uh, th- I had never read this issue before this. And I remember, Rob, when you covered this on your old JLA satellite blog. Ah, uh, yes. And I remember reading it. I remember thinking at the time, really? I- Hawkman drew Superman? Well, that sucks. But, but uh, so, but yeah, so just reading this was, was a delight. And these Perez pages coming, especially after q it's like, uh, I mean, it's just it's just fantastic. It's just really enjoyable stuff. And uh, the, the only about the only complaint I have and has nothing to do with George Perez is that I, I'm not a huge fan of Zatanna's superheroine costume. I much prefer the stage musician style uh, costume. So that's about the only thing that's kind of like a, a minor, minor quibble. But I mean everyone so looks much better
12: than what she wore when she joined the league in the first place. Yes, <laughs>
11: I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. But, but I mean, everyone, that, that's always been, to me, the strength. You know, they're, they're taking a pot shot at the Avengers here, and I was trying to think of who was in the Avengers at this point compared to this lineup of the, of the, the Justice League. I mean, th- this is the, 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 the bread and butter of iconic DC heroes right here, you know? And everyone, like I said, looks so—you know—they look exactly like you picture them in your head. Mm-hmm. Like, except for again, except for maybe Zatanna, but everyone else, is just like, oh, sweet Christmas, this is amazing. <laughs> see that—that that, see that is Zatanna for me because the first right uh,
1: Zatanna really or Zatanna, whichever uh, that I spent a lot of time with was in Blue Devil. Uh, I got you. And in fact, to paraphrase that issue, um, lady, even you make uh, a bug on your head look sexy. So. <laughs> My my favorite dialogue in the whole issue is when the, the original Justice Leaguers are chatting about the Meteors. They're all kind of starting to question it. And Hal, just being Hal, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Batman. Nothing compelled me. You know, Everyone else is like Starting to put it together And Hal's just too thick headed He's like Nah no,
11: I'm good And then he's like You Flash And Barry's like I'm not sure Hal <laughs> <laughs>
5: Because
11: you know Hal was thinking about Some chick he
1: was going to go Bang later yeah. So he's like, not even paying attention Barry's like Don't drag me into this, this is... <laughs> Right uh, the, you
12: said... Is he to have like a, a threesome With Lady Blackhawk And the Huntress Or whatever it was and Cry for Justice Well
2: guys Thanks for doing the show I appreciate it It's <laughs> great uh, We really have to move on to the next segment of just some silence for a little while, but uh, no, it occurs We're to gonna me that put Mike in the corner. <laughs> it occurs to me that considering the result they got with Hawkman, they really could have just sent Snapper Carr to do the job, and you probably might have ended up Snapper being killed, which would have been a win-win for everybody. <laughs> Why do you hate Snapper Carr? Because he's stupid and he takes up way too much space in those Justice League stories. <laughs> do you hate Rick Jones? No, cuz Rick Jones didn't spend a whole bunch of time taking panels away from the Avengers. He didn't? No. Well, well, to be fair, Snapper Car
12: was one of the was involved in one of the best cross-company crossovers ever. <laughs> uh where there was an issue of Our Man and an issue of uh then Marvel Young Justice. Or was it Young Justice? Yep.
1: Where basically oh, Wait, no, those are both DC. I'm sorry. It was
12: Crap. Yeah, it was, it was Captain Marvel because he yeah, was right. hanging it was Captain out Marvel. with Janice at the time. But basically, Snapper and, and, and Rick Jones were on the phone with each other in two <laughs> separate books. And if you bought both books, you saw that they were having a conversation. Well, that's cool. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, was re- it was really sweet, actually. <laughs> they also <laughs> were funny in DC vs. Marvel where they were both in like the little carnival barker. Like Sh- Shacks, I think that was when uh, Captain Marvel and Thor were going to have
11: their fight. Hmm.
2: For, all, for all my kidding around, I am glad that Snappers in here because he deserves to be. I mean, Jerry brought everybody yeah. back, so he absolutely deserved to be in here.
11: So, and you know what? What that actually reminded me of, and and again, not to not to again make make a reference to the Avengers, but you know, in Avengers 100, when they bring back all the Avengers and swordsmen's there. <laughs> you know, yeah. he was like, well, Yeah, you were only an Avenger because you were lying to us and then you betrayed us and tried to kill us, but you can come back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like you're Wonder Man without the redemption part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the only thing again, this, this you knew this fight wasn't going. I mean, some of the other fights in this, it's like, Oh, okay, how is you know, how Batman is, how is he gonna, you know, out Fox? Green Arrow and Black Canary, you know What is Zatanna gonna do To try and take down Wonder Woman, it's like Hawkman Is a straight ahead character, especially the Silver Age Hawkman, you know, it's like He, he would, everyone says I kind oh. of felt bad. Yeah, it's like, what are you gonna do against Superman It's like, really? Really? <laughs> yeah, I
2: mean, even though he's taken out in one punch It actually makes him look more heroic That he even tries such a frontal Assault, I mean, that really makes yeah. him look brave that he just was like, that's all right, I'm going to get right up in Superman's grill and yeah. hit him with my stuff and see what happens. Yeah.
11: And, it's, and the thing is it's, it's very accurate to the way that um, uh, Gardner Fox wrote Hawkman in the Silver Age is that he would – because in the book it was Hawkman would always use his uh, traditional weapons. Hawkgirl would use the super science weapons. She would have the Thanagarian technology that she would use, and it'd always be, "Oh, let's try and catch these crooks and see whose technology works better." So him not packing a super scientific weapon from Thanagar is true to the character, and like you say, it does put him over as, you know, it's like I've got to, I've got to go. I drew the short straw and got to go fight Superman. This is gonna hurt, but I got to do what I got to do. You know, he could have at least
1: got Firestorm to like make him a kryptonite mace or something.
11: Well, Firestorm was too busy being, uh, you know, getting his. his Butt whooped by the Martian man <laughs> But after his butt whooping it's like Firestorm You just stay here on the satellite <laughs> And you know all I could think of with that Is after the, the no, John Jones Lays out Firestorm It's like all I could think of was in Crisis on Infinite Earth When uh, Firestorm Makes the water to put out the fire That's on John Jones Mm-hmm. And I think it was like, maybe in the back of his head, it's like, maybe I should let the guy burn for a few minutes. He kicked my ass in the satellite a couple of years ago. <laughs> well, Don't there's... do it, Raymond. That's not a very mature thing to do. Shut up, Professor. Not just that. There's
1: the whole, you know, Martian invasion that Ronnie blamed the uh, Martian Man Hunter for, too. <laughs> and we all know how well that worked. And here we go. Now we're off to Chapter 8. this is great. The next several chapters are going to be the Appalexians battling each other in very much the Alien Invader playoffs kind of style.
2: Yeah, I mean, no sooner does the JLA get together in a big group than they split all up again. Uh, But that's the nature of these stories, so (laughs) that's what happens. Except this time, they will all be using teamwork to defeat the aliens as opposed to the previous chapters where they were not doing that. So, chapter 8 features... Batman, Black Canary, Green Arrow, Hawkman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Zatanna. And this whole section, this whole final part of the book, is drawn by George Perez and by Breeding. Very nice. Yes, very nice. So they, uh, they go into uh, the forests of Vermont, the battleground known as Vermont. And they find several of the FLX aliens fighting the crystalline guy, the mercury creature, and the wood creature. And like I said, this time they all use teamwork. Um, Superman smashes the wood creature, and inside he is made of kryptonite. So that immediately starts sapping Superman of his strength. Wonder Woman carries him away. Hawkman has also been incapacitated by the wood creature, but he is saved by Green Arrow. Zatanna uses her powers to boil mercury down into basically nothing, into the ground. Black Canary distracts the crystalline creature and waiting in the wings—no pun intended—is Batman. <laughs> he shatters the crystalline alien with a, as he puts it, a well-aimed batarang, and that's it. The three aliens are destroyed. So it'd they're really not that hard to defeat when the when the heroes band together and you know use teamwork,
1: or make sure they pair off against the right ones.
2: That too. Like, <laughs> well, hey, a, 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 you know, a lot of problems is dealing with you know signing the right people to the task.
1: This is a massive team they put together here. I mean, you got seven people for this one. Whereas the next two chapters are much smaller groups. So it's, it's almost like they had some people left over. They're like, mm, just stick them all in that one.
2: <laughs> and this is the heavy hitters, like Superman, Wonder Woman, and Zatanna all in one team. Yeah. Thank God Green Arrow was there too.
1: Well, and Hawkman, because Hawkman was so effectual. Okay, honestly, other than taking out a robot, which didn't really matter in the scheme of things early on, did Hawkman, did Hawkman do anything this episode except need to be saved? This whole issue, I mean.
2: That's a good point. Yeah, well, I mean, elongated
1: man cool. had to save him, you know. Uh, now, Ollie had to save him. It's like,
2: you know, come on, Katar,
1: you're, you're better than that, man.
2: Yeah, the Hawks are a little underserved because, as I mentioned earlier, Hawkgirl is not in this issue, which is like to me the only flaw in this comic because there's no Hawkgirl. And yeah, you're right, Hawkman doesn't get a whole lot to do. So, but you know, Jerry Conway did his, you know, he's trying to keep all those balls in the air. So
10: it is a
1: lot of balls to juggle. A lot now, of balls this to juggle. this first splash. Now, I don't know if this. You know, I haven't looked ahead here. Yeah, I guess I guess we still get our full page splash each mm-hmm. chapter. Yes, yep. This full page splash is gorgeous. I love the amount of detail Perez put into the Invisible Jet.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: look at the cockpit. You can see individual controls, yeah,
2: and
1: <laughs> levers and stuff like that. It's, it's a is flying it. She does appear to be flying either that or she's adjusting the radio. I'm not sure <laughs> which. It's just this. This whole chapter is just so gorgeous, and it just reminds you why Perez was was so the master of DC Comics in this era, and why he deserved to be drawing every DC book. And it's a shame he couldn't.
2: Yeah, I also love too. And the the final page of uh, when the crystalline guy is shooting after Black Canary, and Batman's in the background, and he's just in the silhouette. Mm-hmm. Like I just that's simple. You know, I mean Perez gets so much praise for his hyper detailed. Pages full of a thousand characters, and rightly so, but then he was also, you know, he also knew when to pull back and make it simple. And, you know, he doesn't have to, he could have drawn Batman all in detail, but instead he just puts that bat shape, which is just great. It's perfect. It tells you everything you need to know, and it, you know, highlights the fact that he's waiting in the shadows for the right time to strike. It's just perfect.
1: Now, going back to that concept of the right people, right, fighting the right people, um, I realized they just had to use everybody, but Black Canary dodging. The crystal guy, while Batman shatters him with a batarang.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I struggle with that one. Why? What do you mean? A, a well thrown batarang versus her, you know, sonic uh, screen that can scream, blow yeah. a house down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe they could have had Batman tie him up and then she shatter him or something. I
2: don't know, whatever. But long ago, it's... these contracts were signed. The main heroes have to get the action. Come
1: on, right? I guess so.
2: Guess so. Batman's not going to just stand around and do nothing. He's a marquee character. What's the matter with him? He's
1: Bruce Wayne, of course. He's Bruce Wayne, yeah.
2: So yeah, anyway, that's chapter eight. So we got three of the aliens down. So uh, there's only a couple left here. So chapter nine takes place on the Irish coast with the uh, the forget what the, which villain the, the, the amphibian looking dude uh, the uh, battling the flame uh, Pelax alien and taking on them here is Aquaman, Elongated Man, the Flash, and Red Tornado. Um, Flash is blinded by the, not the crystalline guy, but the glass creature, Um, but that is also a bit of subterfuge, the way uh, it was in the previous chapter. Sneaking up behind him is Aquaman. Aquaman grabs the glass creature, drags him miles down into the ocean, where the depths, where the pressures of the water shatter him into a million pieces. Which is, we'll get back to that in one second. Uh, Yeah, we will. (laughs) Yeah, we will. Uh, The Elongated Man plays the fool, as they say, distracting the fire creature, which gives the Red Tornado the chance to use his tornado powers to extinguish him, snuffs him out like a candle. And uh, Red Tornado talks about, he says, I I swore never to take a life, but this thing was never alive and cannot die. And he destroys it, and Aquaman shows up on the beach and sees that uh, the fire thing has been destroyed. Red Tornado, Elongated Man says, the fish thing? Aquaman says, crushed. All right. And that is it. That there, there, is two more Apelex aliens defeated. It's worth
1: mentioning both these chapters are only three pages.
2: Yes. This is, yeah, this is a very quick wrap-up. When, yeah. when we finished the previous segment, I thought, well, we have about 20, 30 more pages to go. No, it's 10. <laughs> mm-hmm, 10. Mm-hmm. Um, the segment of Aquaman grabbing the glass creature and dragging him down, it is one of my top five favorite Aquaman moments of all time.
1: Do you mean uh, the calculated murder he just does? Yes.
2: Yeah, that is exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, it is one of my all- and it is, you know, I read this comic when I was 10 and my love of Aquaman was still was pretty much in place but it was it was developing and this to me is one of the reasons why I loved him so much because to me this is an incredibly badass moment and I love that Jerry Conway gave Aquaman after kind of giving him short shrift in his own chapter where he sort of has to get saved by the Phantom Stranger. Here he gets a great moment all to himself. And like I never tire of looking at this particular part.
1: It's it's Aquaman's chokehold he has on him and the determination in his face and the next panel where all in the silhouette he just shatters. It's yeah. just it's so powerfully murderer. <laughs> it's just sort of haunting almost. Now, I realize Superman flying through the, the wood guy is not really that different, except that was just one blow.
2: This was a slow, dedicated... <laughs> we see prison. the guy slowly choked to death. <laughs> this is a slow prison chokehold. You know, it's what's going on it's here. It's nasty. Here. It is. It absolutely yeah. is nasty. But, uh, I don't know. That's what I like about it. It's it Agro works. He's not, yeah. not messing around here, you know? No, he's not. And it, just, and it throws in the science. I mean, that's something else, too, is that, like... I didn't understand when I was a kid that, like, you know, that's how the oceans work, that you couldn't just swim to the bottom of the ocean uh, because the pressure would crush you. I didn't right. understand that as a kid. So here is Jerry Conway dropping in a little bit of science. And, in fact, I have to say this piece uh, of Aquaman lore was used in the second volume of the Physics of Superheroes book by Professor James oh, wow. um Several years ago he came to me and asked for a – comic book segment featuring Aquaman for the chapter he was writing on Aquaman and how best to display his powers. And I submitted this piece and Mm -hmm. that's the piece that runs in the book.
1: You should send this to Zach Schneider.
2: Yes, I should. Yes, I should. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Uh, Now, I, I feel it's kind of funny, like the part where Elongated Man is, you know, playing the fool and he's counting on Red Tornado. And I kept wanting to send like, you know, Ralph a note going, Dear Ralph. Don't count on Red Tornado. That's (laughs) never a good bet. So sorry for whatever happens to you.
2: But it worked this time.
1: It worked out this time because the the story needed it to. But realistically, you should not trust Red Tornado with your life.
2: Well, you know, like you said, it, it's all, everybody's relying on teamwork. Come on. That's what the whole issue is about, Shag. Jeez.
1: All right. Jeez. Right, you all can't right. even go with the joke.
2: No, I can't. I, I, I've been taking, this book's been taking shots this whole episode. My God. From all but it's,
1: but it's out of love. It's not like nah, we're taking shots because this love. sucks. We're taking shots at, you know, if we did Crisis, which I hold, you know, holier than holy, I would be taking shots at it.
2: Okay. Well, I'll keep that in mind when we do Crisis. <laughs> so the final chapter is Chapter 10, which takes Woo. place in New York. And features the giant stone alien and the golden rock, uh, by, uh, battling each other as if sort of uh, Godzilla versus Mothra versus uh, well Mothra actually would be the appropriate thing or Ghidra, yeah. I guess. Um, and the heroes here are the Atom, Firestorm, Green Lantern, and Martian Manhunter, who is for some reason a strange shade of yellow at least in my copy. Um, yeah. fi- here. Yep. Firestorm is busy saving civilians from all the debris that is falling. Um, Green Lantern uses his powers to create a jackhammer, and he basically jackhammers the stone creature's face into nothing <laughs> and turns it into a giant pile of rubble. <laughs> Meanwhile, Martian Manhunter fights off the Golden Rock, distract- again, distracting him. Green Lantern uses
1: can, his- can we clarify rock as in, like, the bird? Yes. Just for people at home, they might be thinking stone guy, rock guy.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. I, they call him the Golden Rock. It's the actual bird. He's a yep. bird, yeah. Um, and while Martian Manhunter is fighting off the rock... The Rock uh, Soon to be the Black Adam of the Rock Green Lantern fires Adam out of a little cannon Right into the Golden Rock's brain Which causes him to sort of like Caw in pain Which then gives Marshmallow the chance to shatter him Into a million pieces And this chapter ends with Firestorm Snapping his fingers in uh, in Delight at that they have defeated The final two aliens
1: Actually it ends with a little discussion with the Adam But thanks for taking a shot at Firestorm
2: Yeah, well, what the hell, why not <laughs> So,
1: I thought it was very effective to take Firestorm out of the fight right away and give him civilians to save. Because from, from a story point of view, it gives Firestorm something to do. Because Firestorm's overpowered. I mean, both of these guys, he could turn them both into pickles and be done. Right. Because they're non-organic. Um, but having Firestorm busy is a great way to not end the story, yet Firestorm's still doing something worthwhile.
2: Plus, he was, that was his home base. Yep. At this time. So it makes sense that he's sort of like concerned with the citizenry, maybe more than so. Uh, and then this, so the final two pages take place right outside, or outside the, uh, the JLA satellite. Red Tornado and Green Lantern use their combined powers to send the remnants of all the aliens into the sun, <laughs> leaving no chance of them ever coming back again. And right. then uh, everyone says goodbye to Martian Manhunter and Snapper Carr on the JLA satellite. Aquaman asks, must you go, John Johns? Very sort of nice, sensitive moment there. Marship says, yes, he must. Snapper Carr ends the book as he entered it. An annoying jerk snapping off and he disappeared. Him and and Manhunter beam down. And all that's left is Green Arrow, who of course says, well, I got to get out here because it's members only from now on, right? And the rest of the JLAers say, come on, Green Arrow, why don't you rejoin the team? And Green Arrow initially says, no, I'm a loner. And then he realizes, nah, you know what? Maybe I'm not so much a loner. And he rejoins the Justice League. And so this big anniversary issue ends with... You know, it wasn't just a—it uh, wasn't just a um, celebration. They did sort of change the book, and that Green Arrow is back in the fold, and he's a member once again. And the fi- and Firestorm gets the final line in the book as Marsh, as um, uh, Professor Stein comments that he's snapping his fingers, and Firestorm says, "Snapping? Cripes! Now he's got me doing it." And that <laughs> is the end of this issue. My single all-time favorite comic book ever, and will always will be.
1: That's amazing.
2: I look at at it now. I loved it at the time for the story. I love the history, that it brings back the history of the JLA, and plus the the, the two-page text piece that Jerry Connery writes on the inside covers was a fun little feature. Mm -hmm. So it it has all the history of the JLA, which I loved. It has the greatest collection of artists in a single comic that I can think of. Uh, And then in retrospect, I look at it and say, you know – the original JLA was gone less than 18 months after this because Batman leaves in JLA number – between 216 and 217. Yeah. And so, like, to me, this story feels like the last great gasp of that classic era of JLA. Well, it's the, only, it's
1: the only time you get Martian Manhunter, really.
2: That, yeah. Yeah. There. He doesn't come back again until the JLA Detroit thing kicks off. So, you know, and on a more personal level – this comic was the first time I'd ever heard of something called the Joe Kubert School because they did the lettering for the Hawkman Superman segment. Really? Yes, and I remember I distinctly remember being a kid reading that and going, "The Joe Kubert School, what is that?"
4: Oh wow!
2: So this 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 thing is just hitting me on uh, all cylinders.
1: Jeez. Okay. Now I I don't know when I first read it, and it is possible. That I first read this for this podcast. Wow. I'm not entirely sure. Because uh, I don't remember this book. I remember bits and pieces of it. But I don't remember. like the full, so There's no like full imprint of like, oh, I remember reading that when I bought. I've owned the comic for pff, uh, 20 years at least. <laughs> I mean, I, I know for a fact I still have some JLA issues I have not read. Amazing. Um, well, I have every every uh, every issue of the JLA in in either original or reprint reprint form. My collection starts, I think, with issue one eleven, I think, and from there forward, I have all originals and everything prior to that, I have reprints mm-hmm. of whether it be the archive edition or the uh, essential. No, whoops, showcase edition. But um, <laughs> so I know there's some that I just haven't got around to reading, and this may have been one of them because like, I got parts of this just. I'm like, I don't recall this at all, you know, other than flipping through it. So great comic, though. I mean, what a great example of really fun late Bronze Age stuff, yeah. you know? Or, I mean, almost on the cusp of modern age, even though it's, it's funny. It's, it's almost like an amalgam of a lot of things. Uh, amalgam, sorry. Of, <laughs> I know, I can't say that word. It's, a, it's an amalgam of Bronze Age and Silver Age, yet on the cusp of modern age. You know, you've got the Silver Age elements of the way they broke the story up. It's, it's got that sensibility of Bronze Age and Modern Age because it's right there in 1980 – what is this, 82, I think? What 82, yeah, 82. Yeah, so it's right there, right in between Bronze and Modern Age storytelling, and um, it's fun. I love it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I uh, It's uh, – it just – I never get tired of this comic. I just never get – and I still have the same copy that I had when I bought off the newsstand. And uh, I, if I could – like if I ever had a fire and I could only save one comic, this would be the one <laughs> because, uh, you know – it's just so beloved to me. It's so dog eared. It's held together. Luckily it was it was it's a square bound comic, so it holds up pretty well. But uh yeah, yeah it's it's uh, I said, I just I just get overjoyed when I read it and uh it was so much fun reading it over again with everybody. Uh we spent I don't know how long did we take recording this episode, about three years total,
1: maybe um we started recording it a long time ago. Right like,
2: after episode two, I believe.
1: I'm I'm wondering if what I said in the previous Chapters. People are like, no, like twenty minutes ago Shaq said something completely different. <laughs> like, it's because I recorded that like six months ago. I don't remember.
2: We've had we've had presidential elections over the course of this uh, recording. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean we want to thank, you know, everybody for joining us uh, here. We had Frank and J. David Weeder and Chris and Cindy Franklin and uh Cisco, Michael Bailey, Luke Jackinetti, Chad Bokelman, Sis uh, who else? Who whom am I forget? Brian Daly. Brian Daly, Doug Zawisha. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, it was
11: Jerry freaking. If, well, yeah, Conway. I was saving
2: him for last. Of course. Yes. Jerry freaking Conway. This was, this whole idea of, of talking about this comic for this, for that 100th episode was my notion. And, uh, you know, l- luckily, thankfully Shag went along with it. This is, you know, uh, I, we're not going to get too mushy or anything for the 100th episode or anything, but I will say this, um, for those of you who have podcasts or are listening to this, and many of you have started podcasts since we started recording this episode. Um,
1: <laughs> in, in fact, uh, a couple of the people on this episode, uh, J. David Weider and Ciscoid and I are part of the Legion of Superbloggers, which didn't exist. Not even as an idea when we started recording this thing.
2: That's right. <laughs> um, but um, what I was going to say was uh, for those of you that have podcasts and if you do them with a partner – Uh, You have an understanding of that. uh, Doing a show like this with someone, whether you're in in the same room with them or whether you're not, it's a peculiar relationship. It's it's kind of an intimate one in some ways because you're you're getting to know each other in a form that kind of the people on air don't get to know you. But it's it's weird. It's a weird dynamic uh, that you don't have with any other kind of person. It involves a
1: a lot of narcotics. Doesn't involve a lot after a while. Yeah, a
2: lot of a lot of tolerating of belching into the microphone before the recording starts. (laughs) Um, I'm
1: sick of it, Rob. I wish you'd stop it. I'm
2: tired of it. Um, But, you know, so when I first pitched Shag the notion of doing a podcast, you know, we didn't know each other that well. We really didn't. And it was kind of a crazy idea. And, you know, maybe if I had known what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, No, if I had known. No, no. If I had known then, if I had known. How involved you were going to be with someone. I don't know if I would have reached out to you because I didn't know you as well and I might have been scared off, but I just did it. And I'm glad that I did because I am, I've said this before, I've said this to you privately, and I've said it to, I think I've said it on the air. Like, of all the creative things that I involve myself in, whether it's, you know, the book and Ace Kilroy and all this stuff, this is the thing I'm the most proud of this show. I enjoy doing this more than anything else that I spend my time doing in terms of my creative life. And, you know, I'm really. Proud of it. There's lots of things we could do better, (laughs) and hopefully, (laughs) by by issue by episode 200, uh, whenever the hell that is, um, (laughs) we'll have all the kinks worked out. But I am really proud of the show. I'm proud of this particular episode because it was a dream of mine, and I'm so proud that we got Jerry Conway to be on it. Um, But I'm just proud of the show in general, you know. And uh, you know, thanks for. Being, do, going on this journey with me for these 100 and, you know, I guess I, technically 130 or so episodes.
1: Well, my friend, it's, it's hard to believe it's been exactly three years to the day. To the day.
2: Three years to and, the day.
1: And w- w- what you were saying about we didn't know each other that well, I, I insisted on um, us chatting on the phone ahead of time That's before right. we recorded the first episode. And we chatted for probably like, I don't know, two or three hours. And I was really nervous, and I paced my office um, (laughs) the whole time, not knowing, just not sure where it was going to go. And I I wanted what I was going for was also, is I wanted us to kind of develop a rhythm before we recorded the first episode, not knowing that we'd have to record it three freaking (laughs) times. But anyway, uh, we had a hell of a rhythm by then. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But you know, it, it, it was pretty obvious, pretty fast. Uh, that we were very much on the same wavelength with a lot of things. I mean, we might have our own niches of what we like and what we, you know, where our real passion is. And you're you're more artistic. I'm more, you know, as my friends like to say, I'm more managerial. <laughs> but um, but we just click, and it's been fantastic. I mean, you're one of my best buddies, and we've only ever seen each other face to face for a short period of time, and I appreciate that. And um, you know, all the sentimental things you said about the podcast, man, I love you too, bro. So this has been great, and I wouldn't change a bit of it, except for maybe those episodes with Frank. Maybe that. Maybe yeah.
2: Well, plans. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, we have again the next hundred. He's not going to be in any of those. So right. Not uh, so anyway, <laughs> we also should thank. Uh, we didn't do an ad for them. We should thank Instock Trades for being supportive of the show for all this time. Um, we don't do the show to make money, and can we thank goodness because we don't. Uh, but because <laughs> uh, if we did do it to make money, we were failing miserably. But uh, but we do appreciate Instock Trades. Being there and supporting us financially in a small way, that's always a nice thing. And, you know, we it's it's nice to be able to, um, if you're doing an advertisement, do something that you actually like. You know, we're actually pitching things that we like. It's not like we're trying to sell you, you know, some sort of product that we don't really think you'll like. It's comics. We're trying to sell you on comics that we like, and that's always a nice thing. So we thank them for that. You know, we thank everybody – for listening everybody who writes in i mean it's just such a nice thing i i am i get so energized when i see all the mail come in whether it's on Fan, on com, on tumblr or on the in the um the email which is firewaterpodcast.com guest on that it's really been a great thing and i am looking forward to you know just keeping keep going i don't know what else we have to cover now that we've done my favorite comic but we'll find some <laughs> other things
1: well we did um you know, we list the episode right before this, you know, we covered all that feedback, 54 pages of feedback from everybody. And that was just the greatest experience for me going through that, just because seeing seeing everybody's names, talking with the folks. You know, I just came back from Dragon Con actually a couple days ago and got to meet some of these folks face to face. This community that's cropped up around this thing, I I don't feel like we can claim credit for it other than we're sort of like the eye of the hurricane that happened around. I mean, they, they, they've they taken on a life of themselves, the folks that listen to the show and get involved and talk to each other and mail comics to each other and all the things that everyone does. And uh, I'm just thrilled to be part of this community. And uh, I feel really honored that um, you guys want to hear me and Rob Ramble on every so often and um, want to share your comic love with us. So my thanks to all of y'all. You nuclear, nu- nuclear, nu- nuclear subs are the best. <laughs>
2: Oh, let's end it with that. So uh, <laughs> I guess we should just say fan the flame and ride the wave and we'll catch you all for the next episode, I guess. Right, Chegg?
1: That'll work. We'll, we'll we'll see you in another three years when we do episode 200. <laughs> same time, same place. Meet back here.
2: Look forward to it.
5: Aqua. Truth and justice in sea, on land, and air. Firestorm and Aquaman
6: make a super pair. Aquaman
9: and Firestorm,
6: super friends forever. Yeah!
3: They'll make me the other woman, dude.